Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video for the web novel Out of Space taken from the website Royal Road. I hope that you enjoy and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 221 I Got Bigger Guns One to all flying fish, the flight leader hit the comms as he watched the remainder of the flight forming up next to his wing. Fish with guns to go in first and provide close-in support, while fish with anti-shipping ordnance to commence bombing of that wiggly thing next. Over. Roger, the rest of the flying fish flight replied and the planes warmed up into a 3-3-2 formation. The first three sea cobras were armed with twin 50 cal guns and a dual 20mm gun pod, dipped their nose as the planes appeared to burst into flames as the guns fired, whilst the other three sea cobras with the anti-shipping bombs pulled up to a higher to gain altitude. Streaks of yellow-red traces licked out towards the sea monster that was dazed by the shunning provided by the UNS floating wreck. The heavy rounds hit the thick hide of the Kagra, and the rounds barely even managed to scratch the slimy surface. Crap! One of the pilots was the first wave of sea cobras yelled as they saw their own traces bouncing off the sea monster, and some even appeared to bounce back into them. The three sea cobras spun away as they dodged their own ricocheting rounds and cursed as they found no damage was done to the creature. The second wave of sea cobras dived down and angled the 50 degrees from the sky, with the air screaming through their wings. Releasing their load of 50-kilogram cast-iron bombs, they quickly pulled up one after the other, and a large water spurts erupted out around the squirming sea monster as the delayed fused bombs detonated, the shockwaves further shocking the creature. The island whales bayed in fear and swam further away, trying to escape the sudden loud explosions. The whales raised their serpentine heads out of the waters and watched the death struggle of the Kragar while the strange buzzing creatures roared loudly at it. As the flying fish flight regrouped after their strafing and bombing run, another volley fired by the floating wreck hammered into the sea monster, and suddenly the Kragar vomited out a dark cloud of blue substance as its movement slowed and ceased as it floated in the waves. Flying Fish 1 to Matador, the Flying Fish leader radioed the circle around the sea monster. I think the monster's dead. Over. Matador, Rogers, came back the reply. RTB for resupply. Over. With that, the planes of the Flying Fish returned back to the base, while the flight of Cobras launched from the far harbor took over observation duties over the sea monster. UNS Singapore Conference Room the trio of islanders glued their eyes to the wondrous imagery coming from the large rectangular flat surface. They had watched some dramas and shows with similar artifacts in the hotel rooms, but these current images were being shown live. They were invited by Captain Blake over this strange yet fascinating castle that appeared to be made out of some kind of metal. It only further confused them as to where the would the humans go and waste so much good iron just to make something like this but it was because they were so rich in metal that they could afford to splurge in some weird castle. Could the yours they traded with used to build the strange castle? Is it some kind of monument to the gods? The islanders couldn't understand what was going on in the minds of these strange humans. They were given several pictures of what were drawn so lifelike and with colors so vibrant that it could only be made by some kind of high-level magic. They recognized the monsters shown in the pictures and told what they knew of these creatures to Blake and his staff. 
Not long after, they were shown to these amazing moving images of the Captain Blake said was happening, live, as in right now. The trio was stunned by the implications of such a magic artifact, as it meant that something that was happening across vast distances could still be viewed as if it was happening with this artifact. Ikron immediately asked, How much is this artifact? Give me an offer. Captain Blake laughed as he heard what Akron said. This, unfortunately, is not sellable. Why? I can give you any price you ask for. Akron quickly said, I can trade with you our largest warship, a man of war. Dijon and Megan gasped as they heard what Akron was willing to offer for that artifact. The man of war was the Isle's pride and joy. There were only 15 such war vessels in the Isle's fleet, with each fleet master owning two or three only. It was a symbol of strength to the Isles, which even a pathetic few ocean-going warships of the Empire can barely match the might of a single man of war. Akron had only two man of war in his fleet, with one serving as his flagship while the other his captain by his son. The man of war could carry up to 300 fighting men and carries 11 heavy ballistas on each broadside. Its armor can withstand multiple hits from ballista bolts and brought fear to the enemies when it appears. The cost of building one man of war can easily fund the construction of several smaller frigates. Yet Captain Blake wasn't impressed by the offer. He shook his head and said, I'm very sorry, but this tech is not for sale. Tet, Akron frowned, give me an offer, I'll do my best to match it. Blake smiled, no, I think you do not understand what I mean. This can't be sold, and seriously, I do not really need any warships. He gestured to the screen which showed the death of the Kragar, as if mocking the man of war of the Isles. Akron, enough! Megan spoke up that Akron wanted to push harder. Look at their weapons. They can easily kill the Kragar with just two ships and their flying machines. What makes you think they need a man of war? I, I, yes, you're right. Akron backed down after hearing Megan's words. I'm sorry, Captain Blake. I have overstepped my boundaries. It's okay. Blake waved away his apologies. I understand how exciting it is and the possibilities it can offer. Akron nodded solemnly, knowing that with such an artifact, they can get information directly firsthand without any time lag between using Virums or courier dragons. Is what is shown here true? Dijon asked suspiciously. He has taken part in the battle with the Kargar many years back and had failed to defeat it, and yet a third of the convoy was destroyed. Blake nodded and said, Yes, the Navy is now attempting to bring back the carcass of the sea monster back. Can we see it? Megan's eyes glowed in excitement. I didn't see a Kargar before. Sure, I can make the arrangements once the fleet has returned to the dock with the creature. FAC-04 Mosey was momentarily airborne as it hit a wave and seaman Nero felt gravity disappearing as he braced himself inside the open-air dual 50 cal gun turret on the flying bridge and speeding boat. He gave out a cry of excitement as the boat appeared to fly through the choppy waves. Along the sides of Mosey was FAC-05 Lassie as it plowed through the waves, kicking huge sprays of water at high speed. Nero peered out over the gun shield of his weapon and saw a huge purplish-gray island coming up ahead. A flight cobras buzzed around above them while the far distance several islands with flippers and heads appeared to be swimming closer to them. Heavens! Nero gasped in amazement as the PT boat came next to the floating carcass of the sea monster. The boat pilot reduced his speed and the PT boat made a circuit around the sea monster. 
The water was full of the dark blue stain which Lero assumed to be the blood of the monster. The huge, glossy, lifeless eyes of the monster stared dead ahead, and Lero counted a total of four eyes, two on each side of its face. The mouth tentacles stretched out far and bobbed up and down with the waves, and there was barely any wound seen on the body of the creature. Is it dead? Lero heard one of the crews below yelled, as they all looked at the monster floating there. Lero shuddered at the thought of if it wasn't, they would be the ones dead. Still, he aimed his armed fifty cal at the creature as the boat slowly powered next to the creature. As they came next to the creature, the stench was overwhelming, smothering like a mixture of rotting garbage and spoiled milk. Coughing madly and pulling his sea-strained uniform to cover his nose, Lero's eyes teared up at the stench irritating his eyes. Moses' commander, Petty Officer Jorn, quickly ordered the pilot to back the boat away and to not get too close. Both the PT boats moved away from the carcass and stayed roughly 200 meters away from the mound of flesh upwind from it. Fark! That's disgusting! Lero spat over the side before taking out a canteen of water to rinse his face and mouth. No wonder no fishes are coming to eat that thing with the smell that bad. As he capped the canteen, he noticed the island whales coming closer and closer. Hey boss, those weird island fish are coming closer. What do we do? Petty Officer John heard his yell, clambering up to the flying bridge and looking out over the pair of binoculars. I heard that they're quite docile and friendly. Maybe they're just coming to have a say thanks. Um, well, they flip us over if they come too close. Nero swallowed his fear as he saw the moving islands come almost right up on top of them. He could even see the virums roosting in the trees on the backs of those creatures and thick vegetation growing on their backs. The one which was grappled by the Kragar had its back look like a stuffed hurricane, as the foliage on its back was torn and the trees were broken here and there. Nero wondered how these creatures came to grow an island with trees and plants on their parts at some point. The island whales paused several meters away from the two boats and both sides stared at each other with curiosity. The heads of the island whales looked serpentine with the thick folds of skin and intelligent beady eyes. Their mouths were beaked and shaped like a pika-pika bird, and they had turtle-like flippers. So what do we do? Nero asked again as he nervously howled the butterfly grips of the dual 50 cal. Farked if I know, John whispered back. Gotta make a damn call. With that, John climbed back into the wheelhouse, leaving Nero alone to the turret mount. Time passed and the island whales just watched them, while the injured whale once in a while gave a bay of pain. The unique hull of the shape of the UNS Matador and the UNS Floating Wreck soon appeared over the horizon. The island whales gave out a cry as they saw the ships, but did not do anything else except watch. Commander Ford stood on the launch deck and frowned as the wind changed and the stench of the monster drifted over. He mentally estimated the length of the sea monster to be at least twice that of the Matador, and he peered over to the side of the ship, into the dark waters below, and wondered... What other horrors are there underneath these feet? He turned to his assembled crew and the deck and yelled, All right, boys, we got a crap job to do. That is to tow that stinking bag of crap monster back to Far Harbor. End of chapter. Chapter 222. The Great Krogar. Far Harbor. 
People lined the wharves and the docks as they watched the fantasized horror as the huge, dark, purplish lump of flesh that gave off an overpowering stench being towed into a seaplane tender. UNS Matador. Despite the gagging smell, the elves who lived in the interior of the continent had never laid eyes on any sea monster before, only hearing them in tales passed down by their ancestors who crossed the great ocean coming to the new world. Even the islanders were impressed by the sheer size of the monster as they nimbly climbed up their ship's masts to gain a better view. As the matador passed by Far Harbor, it blew its foghorn and acknowledgement to the excitement and awe crowding around and cheered wildly. They suddenly saw several moving islands that appeared to be moving following behind the UNS floating wreck. They looked at each other and in wondered what those were, while the Isle sailors were dumbstruck at the scene. The matador released the towing chains and the PT boats took over the duty of towing towards the land at a location two kilometers away from Far Harbor to prevent the stench from reaching the port. The PT boats dragged the carcass as close to the shore as possible, and the tide washed the sea monster up to the beach, where a large group of people donned in bright yellow biohazard gear waited. Dr. Sharon stared at the sea monster in excitement, momentarily ignoring the voice in her head. She ran left and right of the carcass, taking samples and measurements. Even Magister Thorne, wearing a cumbersome biohazard gear, moved with vigor as he oohed and aahed together with Dr. Sharon. At a further distance, with their faces covered with cloth masks and rebreathers, Captain Blake stood with a trio of islanders and several other officers as they watched the ongoings happening at the beach. Tents and isolation chambers, spotlights and measuring tapes were all set up here and there as the science teams and tech swarmed over the sea monster. What are they doing? To John, his voice muffled as he asked while looking at the strange yellow-suited people moving around the monster's carcass. They are taking samples and other readings to find out more about the creature, Blake thought a while before he replied in as simple terms as he could. They are dissecting the monster. Sam Pearl! Megan frowned in an unfamiliar world. D-d-dissecting? Um, Blake snapped his fingers and thought of an appropriate reply cutting it up to see what it is and see if there's anything that can be used from it. Oh, like a monster dismantler, Megan asked. Yeah, I guess so. Blake could only give a helpless shrug. They're also studying it to find any weakness and other stuff. I see. Dijon nodded in understanding. Understand the enemy to defeat the enemy. Blake nodded and returned to watching the scene before them. He had speed-read the preliminary report sent by Commander Ford, as they had flown over here. The pilots reported that their 50 cal and 20mm guns barely were able to penetrate the rubbery hide of the monster, and the 50kg bombs and the 3-inch HE shells killed it in the end. If that was true, they would need to develop AP shells for the 3-inch guns and also some of the depth charges or even torpedoes to kill these monsters if there were more of them out there. Blake frowned as he thought of the unknown lurking out there, and they definitely needed to equip all the ships with sonar. Do these monsters appear frequently? Blake asked. How do your ships deal with them? Dijon stared at the human, thinking whether he should tell him anything. His chest still smolders with the thought that the princess's heart is his. Megan watched Dijon's expression and rolled her eyes before lightly snapping the back of her hand against his shoulder. Dijon gave a sigh before saying, They normally stay at the deeper parts of the ocean. That is one reason why no ship ever has made it back from the old world. 
The younger ones tend to drift into shipping lanes once in a while, the John explained. While we hang bells underwater and hammer it, they do not seem to like the sounds made by ringing bells underwater and will go away. But how do you spot them? Blake asked curiously. We don't, Dijon stared directly at Blake. We only know when they suddenly ship gets eaten. Dr. Sharon hovered excitedly over the tech who was using a high-powered drill to pierce the hide of the monster. After several minutes, the drill finally sort of managed to punch through the rubbery hide and the yellowish fat followed out. She quickly scooped up a pale yellow fluid and collected it into a jar before running off to the off-site mobile lab that was set for analysis. The sea monster looked similar to a Terran giant squid, with an arrowhead, but with two pairs of eyes and a pair of pincer claws. How fascinating! Dr. Sharon cried as she first saw the creature. It has been quite a while since she had a new species to play with. And today, there were two new species for her to look at and play with. I'll find out all your secrets, she whispered to herself as she sat down at the lab table. Then, I'll look at those cute little island whales. <laughs> UNS Matador Bridge Ward gave a sigh of relief as he moved his cloth mask. The stench of the monster was just really bad, and he wondered if the smell would linger on his ship. He better have the chief's mate open up all the hatches and air out the whole ship later. He turned his gaze towards the island whales that had followed them back and wondered what they wanted from them. If those things lingered around here, they were going to call some shipping hazards as they can move around the area. Now that they reached for harbor, they just have to wait for a tug to pull them into the port and the crew can get some time off after they've secured the ships. Ford sighed as he thought of all the paperwork and the reports he got piled up for him when he returned to his office on land. Damn, I'd rather fight sea monsters than do paperwork. A couple hours later, Blake boarded the Matador with much fanfare from the crew and the islanders in tow. They looked around the ship for curiosity as they stood on the launch deck and wondered why did they board the top deck splat and how does the ship with two hulls move with any sails. Ford smiled at an expression of the islanders and Dijon recognized Ford as he waited with party of his senior officers at the entrance of the island bridge. Welcome aboard the Matador. What's the flat deck for? Dijon could no longer hold back his curiosity. This... Ford tapped the deck with his feet and grinned. It's our flight operations. You can land dragons and other flying machines here, Ford explained to the surprised islanders. Dragons? Dijon gave a jerk of his head to look around the launch deck. This is ingenious. Why haven't we thought of this before? Akron cried out. The isles have no heavyweight or medium weight species of dragons. But we have plenty of lightweight dragons that served as scouts and messengers, Akron explained. Normally, if we use them on board the ships, they land or fly off from the mast of the ship, but there is a chance to damage the masts, riggings, or sails. This idea of having a dex on the ship flat for dragons to land on and take off. Akron's eyes glowed, the concept of dragon carrier came to his mind. Megan stood to the side and watched the exchange amongst the humans and her colleagues and frowned inwardly. These humans have so many innovative ways of doing things that they kept insisting none of these ideas were powered by magic. Where did these humans come from, and where did they learn all of this technology from? Will they turn on us and invade us? Megan felt more and more uncomfortable the longer she was with the humans, as she couldn't understand them. Megan! 
Dijon yelled out, This ship is amazing! Megan schooled her face and smiled, not giving off any indication of how disturbed she is with the smiling humans. She shuddered slightly as she looked at the two tall humans looking at them with consolation looks like they were children in their eyes. Dijon and Akron continued to discuss about the endless possibilities that these concepts could bring to the Isles. Megan feigned interest and kept a wary eye on the humans who lent them to a tour of the ship, in a way, showing off their power. Frankly, she was shocked by the power of the humans and the princess's alliance. Two ships and few strange flying machines killed a sea monster that would normally take over twenty great warships to defeat, and they did not even suffer a single casualty. Not to mention, the prosperity of the city they had seen that no other cities or kingdoms could replicate. There were no beggars seen, nor any poor folk. The poorest folk could even afford clothes in such high quality that no other kingdom would give them to their own people. Megan suspected that the Splake wanted them to see how they defeated the Krigar, and even hosted them to view the warship was a booth to give them a warning of assurance at the same time. The message was simple. Become our enemy, and we will destroy you easily, just as we have with the Krigar. But ally with us, and you can be guaranteed good returns from how prosperous you have seen with your own eyes. Megan was very sure that this was not all their power. They must have some hidden card somewhere. And, with this thought, Megan felt afraid. One wrong diplomatic move, and we will have a great cagar at our throats. She better makes sure that Dijon doesn't do anything to anger the captain, or they will have a diplomatic crisis on their hands. Sight of the Krigar Research and Recovery Magister Thorne hummed as he watched the efficient workers break down the Krigar piece by piece and label properly in the cold night. Lucky, it was winter and it helped to keep the carcass from rotting faster. If not, Thorne couldn't wonder how much worse the smell would be. Workers struggled with power tools to cut the monster up, with several science department techs overseeing the whole operation under the glare of the bright white lamps. Power tractors hoisted the crate portions of the sea monster and loaded them into trucks to be sent off to the refrigeration units to be further analyzed by the science department later on. He wondered who would win, Ruth Under or this monster, or if the two of them would ever fight. He had never seen such a huge monster in his life, and the size and the weight of the Krugar clearly outclassed the heavyweight dragons by a wide margin. He would place his best on the Krogar, but the looks of those hundreds of meter long tentacles that had a nasty looking barbed suckers. He doesn't even know what spells could hurt this creature, and by the preliminary reports he heard from Dr. Sharon, the human's thunder weapons were barely able to pierce through its hide. Well, good thing he didn't really like the water. Once his portion of the samples arrived at the academy, he would use a variety of spells to test on it to see which spell and element are the most efficient against it. <laughs> Thorn suddenly laughed while rubbing his hands. My, even after getting this old, this old man still gets a chance to see new wonders. My life hasn't been in vain. <laughs> End of chapter. Chapter 223 Friendly Giants Bursts of salty water sprays drizzled over Dr. Sharon as she soaked in the sun and forward decks of the PT boat engines roared over the sounds of the crashing waves. She carefully shuffled her way next to the green-faced Magister Thorn, who looked like he was going to collapse any time. 
How are you doing? She asked, grinning, as the sickly-looking magister. Thorn gagged as he tried to keep himself from vomiting from seasickness. This is not, not, not what I call enjoyable. Dr. Sharon laughed and whooped as the craft bounced higher than the crewmen secretly sniggered behind their stations. Despite being only 15 minutes' ride, the rough journey made Thorn seriously sick as he had never experienced something like this before. Look, we're reaching already. Dr. Sharon grabbed Thorn and shook him excitedly, making him groan and lean over the side to puke. Hold on to your hat, cried Wild from one of the pilot house, and suddenly the PT boat swung around madly to the starboard, turning a sharp 180 degrees and throwing a large sheet of water into the air. Magister Thorne yelled in fright as he felt himself flying off and buckle seating, while Dr. Sharon laughed madly. The PT boat finally settled down and to next to the curious whale, which the pod of island whales had stationed themselves several kilometers away from land. The huge breakhead of the island whale peered out from the water's surface and blinked its beady eyes. There was a pale scar that ran from its left eye all the way down its long neck. It bayed out a cry of greeting before sinking its head back underwater to feed on the numerous plankton and jellyfish-like organisms. The pilot smoothly reversed the PT boat so that the stern of the boat faced the creature and the crew dropped two inflatable dinghies over the side. Thorn... Dr. Sharon dug her medical pouch out and handed him a space sickness pull and a bottle of water. Take this. It'll help you with motion sickness. Thorne gratefully accepted the pull and swallowed it with water. After a while, he felt better. The giddiness had subsided, and he no longer felt like vomiting. The crew called out to the science team together at the stern to board the dinghies. On the other side of the PT boat, similar scenes played out with the two other PT boats as marines boarded the dinghies in ones and twos. Seaman Lero ensured the shotgun was strapped securely behind his back as he took a spot on the electric motor of the dinghy. The science team slowly made their way down to the dinghies, five on each with two naval crewmen with them. Once everyone was settled down, Lero powered up the motor and pointed the dinghy towards land. The inflatable dinghies were taken from the liftcraft of their spaceship, scrapped gently up the beach on the island whale. All right, out! Lero yelled out as the team on his dinghy, Everyone help pull the boat up! We don't want to be washed away back by the waves or tide! Dr. Sharon boot hit the sandy beach and she took another round wonder. How was the creature able to carry an island on its back? She returned to help with the rest of the tug the boat up the beach and quickly turned her attention to her surroundings. If she did not see the head of the island well, she would have thought that it was a real island. The only difference from the tropical earth-type foliage was the colors of the leaves and the species of the trees and plants. Driftwood and other sea debris littered what appeared to be a tide line. Sharon could even see several small crustacean species running about on the sand. Cries of the verum nesting in the trees echoed out together with sounds of other creatures and insects that vied for each other for attention. This is amazing, Dr. Sharon cried out as she activated a shoulder-mounted video camera, while the marines then landed spread out in a protective formation. Hero and the other naval crew members lugged out crates of equipment from the dinghies, and the science team members quickly set up on instruments and other unknown equipment that Lero could only guess their purpose. Hey, Doc! Sergeant James Bone walked over and greeted Dr. Sharon. How's it going? 
Oh, hey there, Sarge. Dr. Sharon smiled as she recognized the Marine. You look a lot better since the last time I saw you laying on the hospital bed bleeding all over my floor. Ha! <laughs> James grinned. Marines are meant to be mended and patched. Don't make it a habit, Dr. Sharon advised. There's only so few of us left. Yeah, James nodded as he promised. Anyway, what do we have here? He looked at the tropical setting of the island and greatly crashed against the drifting snow and cold winds. Well, my guess is that these creatures migrate from one place to another during the cold seasons, most likely to seas with warmer currents and hence the tropical flavor, Dr. Sharon said. Then, why are they still here? James watched Magister Thor leading a couple of science team members, poking at some stuff here and there excitedly. Your guess is as good as mine, Dr. Sharon frowned as she gestured out to sea. But if I would guess, I'd say they find it safer here. Another guess would be that they are recovering and from the attack from the Kragar, and once recovered, they'll move on. Hmm, James thought that it made some sense. Well, I got my boys to keep your team safe. Make sure none of your team moves without any security escort. We don't know what's inside the jungle. Dr. Sharon nodded and James gave a quick salute before he left to yell at his men. Even with the rumbling voice in her head, it didn't dampen her spirits and she looked at the new things that she could find here. UNS Singapore Command Bridge Captain, the science team has landed safely on the island whale. The operator reported from his station. Blake nodded and continued watching the live stream of the science officer. He was surprised that there was such a creature here which reminded him of those tales of turtles carrying the world on their backs. But in this case, it was an island. I wonder if we can tame them, thought Blake as he watched the ongoings on the back of the creature. If they could be controlled, won't they make good refilling stations for ships and planes? Captain, Commander Ford greeted Blake as he entered the command bridge. How's the expedition force? They landed, and so far, so good, Blake replied. How about your end? It's been two days since the fleet returned to the docks and the sea monster protest for scientific studies. Both ships will be undergoing refits and repairs, and with the weather forecast for the coming week showing that the seas are going to be very rough, Ford joined Blake and watching the imagery. The fleet will be stranded, so it's a good time for the ships to have some dock time. Blake nodded. Next week will be founding day. It's going to be the biggest holiday for everyone. I hope nothing unexpected turns up. Well, I can't really be surprised much now, Ford admitted, but seriously, I think I need to rethink the manual for naval operations now. Also, we're going to need depth charges, torpedoes, and more firepower, Ford said. That thing took all the three-inch shells like we were pissing at it. Luckily, water transmits shockwaves pretty well. If not, I don't think we would have killed it, Ford pointed out the weakness. Either that, or we have to aim for its eyes. Blake nodded. Well... Ordnance is working on a larger variant of the three-inch guns. Depth charges shouldn't be too hard for them to come out with, but torpedoes. Torpedoes are not really armor-piercing weapons, Blake said to Ford. Well, we can still have the Ordnance to do some research on it and come up with a viable plan later on. Ford nodded. Dragons, sea monsters, and now swimming islands. What's next? Back of the Island Whale Scar the science team gathered soil samples and floral samples while the marines played babysitters on the back of the island whale that they called Scar due to the scar along the side of its head. James's booted feet crunched as he stepped from the frozen insects and plants that were slowly wilting under the cold temperature. Hey, Doc, James called out. 
Isn't the cold bad for the ecosystem here? He eyed a half dozen colorful vrooms with bright red and green feathers and long feathery tails. Dr. Sharon bent down and carefully picked up a frozen creature from the size of a chicken and gently wrapped it in thermofoil to help it warm up. Yes, the ecosystem here is dying due to the weather. Dr. Sharon busied herself with saving the poor, shaking virum. We see what we can share and collect, but I doubt much can be saved. Will that affect the island whales? James asked as he shifted his weight with his rifle sling. I mean, with the islands on its back dying, will there be any um, problems for the whales? I seriously don't know, Sharon replied. I can't even imagine how we can even look at the biology makeup of these amazing creatures, and I still have a sea monster waiting for me back in the lab. Happening times, James commented as he watched the birms coming back to life. I wonder if the whale would allow us to take a blood sample. Gauging by the strength of the Krugar, Dr. Sharon carried a revived worm up. I think we might need something a lot larger than the needles that we have to poke into the hide of the creatures. Heh. <laughs> James laughed as he made their way back to the camp. Wait! Dr. Sharon froze and desisted the rest of the team and the marines. What is it? What is this? James used his rival muzzle and pushed away some soft floral, exposing a glittering column. Oh my gods! Dr. Sharon and the rest of the team all looked stunned at the object that James had uncovered, a cluster of shimmering crystal columns glistening under the dim sunshine as the shriveled-up plants covering the surfaces were all pulled away. What is this? James repeated as he looked at the rainbow glitter of the crystals. From each column was about the size and thickness of a human, and even the weak sunshine from the outcast skies, the crystals gave off a glittering rainbow sheen. Spread out and see if they can see any more of these crystal clusters, James commended his men, who started the search around the area and found several more clusters overgrown with flora. They seem to grow out of the ground, Dr. Sharon replied excitedly. Call Magister Thornover, he might know something. James nodded and gestured for one of his men to do it, while he continued to clear more vines and leaves away. Wait, these look familiar. James frowned as he ordered his men to help clear up the foliage. Dr. Sharon turned to James. You're right, they do look familiar. Aren't these those energy manner that we got from the T-Rex Godzilla monster? James leaned forward and observed closely. One of the first classes given by the Marines is to not touch anything in the bare hands when outfield with the science team. Several images made by Magister Thorne showing effects of someone touching an unknown magical artifact that backfired had the Marines' itchy hands controlled. You're right. Dr. Sharon stared wide-eyed as she read the readouts on the chart on a portable analyzer. Its energy readings are off the charts. End of chapter. Chapter 224. Monster Briefings. Its tensile strength can be comparable to graphene, which is around 200 times that of steel, Dr. Sharon said as she stood at the head of the conference table. She displayed an image of a cut-out portion of the slab of purplish-white meat, pointing to the skin portion which information overlays appeared. The skin or hide of the beast is roughly 2 centimeters thick on average, with a thickness raising to 5 centimeters thick, covering vital organs of the creature. Tests show that it can withstand anything below our 3-inch guns or the 70mm rockets as long as the impact point is not on an oblique angle, Dr. Sharon reported. The height of the creature, however, isn't so resistant to sharp implements. 
That doesn't mean that the creature is vulnerable to sharp implements like blades or armor-piercing weaponry, Dr. Sharon continued. It has a second layer of underneath that skin, which acts as a force absorbent. She pointed at the next portion highlighted on the image. The animation showed the skin separating from a thick yellow-white layer underneath. This is what you could call a blubber or fat of the monster. It's on average 40 centimeters thick in most places and is up to 60 centimeters on selected body parts. The rendered image of the Korogar showed up on the display and several locations were highlighted out. The fat acts as a shock absorbent and also a self-seeding bad aid, Dr. Sharon showed another image. We dug two of this out of its body, buried inside the blubber. An image of two battered-looking three-inch shell heads were laid out alongside dozens of other items. We also found a total of 86 expended 50 cal bullets and 43 20mm shells intact inside its body. Dr. Sharon read out the list. Hundreds of shrapnel, most likely from bomb casings or shattered ammunition, and also dozens of what we believe to be teeth or claws of other silly monsters embedded inside its vat. The cause of death was overpressure, Dr. Sharon said next. High explosive impact of the three-inch shells on the 50-kilogram bombs ruptured its internal organs. You should have seen the mess it made at the science labs. The guys will be cleaning out their place for months. So, Doc, Chief Engineer Matt spoke up. Does this mean our current conventional weapons are useless against it? Yes and no, Dr. Sharon replied. Hmm, low-caliber weapons will be useless, uh, but thermobaric weapons should mess them up pretty well. Hmm, Brake frowned. This creature sounds a lot like the swarm. People both gathered around the conference table, attended online, all mumbled in agreement. Well, genetically, they do not match each other, Dr. Sharon explained over the concerned mumblings. Don't forget that the swarm takes on the traits of the species it consumed, so it would not be surprised if the swarm had encountered a similar creature like this over the galaxy and took on some of its traits. All right, Blake clapped his hands together and get everyone's attention. The way to get it is a bomb hit until it dies of internal injuries or hit it with a bigger gun, right? Dr. Sharon rolled her eyes before replying, in a simplified way, yes. Okay, Blake turned to Master Sergeant Pike's image and said, Top, I want you to get ordnance to work out some kind of depth charge for both the Navy and Air Force and also expedite the new guns. Pike nodded as he took down some notes. Yes, sir. Doc, continue your research on the creature and see if we can make use of its hides or blubber for any military or civil applications. Blake ordered. What else? Continuing on, Dr. Sharon switched the images again, and this time, an image of an island whale appeared. We found some interesting things on these creatures. By luck, we actually found the backs of the islands of these creatures to contain several loads of energy stones, Dr. Sharon said excitedly. If you all could remember, we fought the defeated T-Rex Godzilla-like monster inside the dungeons. On its body, we harvested crystals we dubbed energy stones, which are in essence solidified condensation of pure energy. Dr. Sharon explained, These stones had all been converted into a stable liquid electrolyte that is currently being used for a point-defense laser turrets and the ship's main railgun batteries. The amount we harvested from the T-Rex only limited to over a dozen charges, Dr. Sharon said, but we struck gold here. We estimated from the amount we managed to uncover that the island whales have close to over a hundred charges or more of energy stones. Dr. Sharon displayed the next few images and their findings on the island whales. 
Captain, I propose that we increase all resources mining this material, Dr. Sharon said to Blake. As we do not know when will the island whales depart as clearly, they are migrating creatures as evidence from the tropical flora on their backs. What are the risks? Blake asked as he pondered at Doctor's request. We do not really need to rely solely on the energy stones as our power grid is now able to handle most of the ship's onboard weapons. Risks? Dr. Sharon frowned before answering. I have no guarantees on the risks, as we totally have no idea or nor the habitual information of these island whales, but so far they are pretty docile. We managed to extract some blood from one of the whales and even mined some samples of the energy stones, Dr. Sharon clarified. So far the whales remained as they were as before, feasting on plankton and jellyfish. I believe this is an opportunity that we shouldn't waste. Chief Engineer Matt spoke to Dr. Sharon. Having another energy source at our disposal allows us to have backup in case of SHTF situations. What do you think? Blake turned to Ford and asked. I would agree too. Ford replied, if we can harvest more resources, it'll only help us in the long run. Blake nodded and said, go for it, but take all precautions. I don't want to lose lives for a few energy stones. Yes, sir. Captain, Pike remained behind in the video conference as everyone left or logged out. A minute of your time, sir. What is it, Tom? Blake stopped in his tracks. Sir, I think you might want to come down to the ordinance for a look. Pike smiled mysteriously. Okay... Sure, Blake agreed, and Ford gave a shrug as Blake gave him a questioning look. Ford stepped down on the accelerator of the jeep and grinned. Damn, I missed driving. Blake laughed as he sat back in the seat while Ford continued. I have spent like almost a month out at sea and in port. It's not like I have any chance to drive. Well, go slow. I don't want to spend my time in the hospital under Dr. Sharon's care. <laughs> well... I think I know who you'd find to rather care for you, yes? Ford shot a sly grin to Blake, who laughed back. So how's the princess? Ford asked as he took the exit out of the side streets and towards the east gate. When are you guys planning the wedding? Hmm, we still haven't thought of when is the wedding, Blake sadly replied. That's just too much on our plates right now. Oh, come on, Ford moaned. Just set a date and leave the rest to the staff to handle. Is it that hard to do? True, Blake nodded. I'll talk to her later about this. God damn, Ford shook his head. I seriously worry for your relationship. How about you? Blake quickly changed the subject. Anyone you're interested in? Ha! Who am I going to find when I'm mostly out at sea? Ford replied as the guards waved them through the checkpoint at the east gate. I just leave it to fate. Hmm, Blake smiled. Well, maybe I should let you meet up with the islanders more. That girl Megan is quite pretty. Don't you start, Ford raised an eyebrow as he raced down the eastern highway. I'm not that desperate. Yet. <laughs> Blake laughed. I wonder what Top wants us to see. One kilometer east of the base colony, Ordnance Research Division facility, Ford pulled the jeep to a stop and reversed into the parking lot before the two officers exited the vehicle. They entered the secured facility and found Pike at the outside of the hangar-like structure. Sirs, Mike, with the rest of the waiting techs and staff saluted as the two officers walked up and returned the salutes. Welcome to ORD. Well, what's the urgency here? Blake asked as he followed Pike towards the hangar doors. <laughs> Sir, Pike grinned. I think you're gonna like this. Pike turned to one of the techs and nodded, and the hangar doors crunched open while everyone stood back from the doors. 
Blake waited in curiosity at the side and he suddenly laughed madly as he saw what stomped its way out of the hangar. <laughs> God damn it! You guys really did it! A five-meter-tall, six-legged, multi-joint walker, similar in design to the ASASGs, walked out of the hangar with a crab-like grit. An open hatch was clearly and the pilot sat forward facing on the spider tank with the turret on its back. It looked like a 21st century armored vehicle without tracks, having six multi-jointed legs instead, while a machine gun blister sat on each side of the walker. The manned armored walker Bushmaster, or M.A.W., Brike proudly presented the walker as it stormed its way over to the testing field. Armed with a 3-inch stub gun and a dual 10-cell 70mm rocket pods with a coaxial MG and a copella-mounted MG, a co-pilot MG and an MG casement for the flanks. It runs with a crew of seven and can carry up to 30 tons of gear and equipment. Pike led the all-struck officers to the testing field. Its multi-jointed legs allow for easy maneuverability over the roots and trees in the forest, giving us an average speed of 19 kilometers per hour. While moving over relatively flat terrain, it can get up to 28 kilometers per hour, Pike said. It also can go wheels down, which will increase its speed up to 46 kilometers per hour. Damn, I didn't expect you guys to really come out with this. Blake grinned as he admired the walker painted in the local forest green-blue camo scheme. Well, it's designed and programmed came from senior spaceman Tai John Puck, spaceman Hideo Kochi, and of course, Irisvel, who crafted the frames of the golems. Pike gave credit to the trio. As we lack AI calls, we decided to have a person pilot these instead. With the so-called magic programming code, which SS Pack and SM Koichi invented, Pike struggled with a straight, as he explained. They managed to devise a system which the golem will use moving forward in a certain set of controls. Since the golem does not need any processing power or autonomous control, the amount of energy it uses also is greatly reduced. Pike patted the spider tank. It can function on average 10 hours on combat situation and 16 hours on non-combat situations. Armor is 50 millimeters thick and rolled homogeneous steel with explosive reactive armor plating. Pike pointed to the blocking stabs lining the sides of the spider tank. Internally, the framework of the golem is made out of porous stone mixed with ceramic clay that allows it to absorb any shock and give it some flexibility to prevent any breakage. Blake and Ford stared the sloping side armor of the spider tank and followed Pike's lead as he climbed up on one of the multi-jointed legs. The test crew stood on the top of the tank and showed off the new vehicle with pride as the two officers gawked at the machine. Am just in time to show off for founding day. End of chapter. Chapter 225, Year 1, plus 4 months. The entire city was decorated with banners and flags of reds, blues, whites, and gold. Music and processions of dancers and performers filled up almost every street as the city inhabitants danced and celebrated in the snow. Bursts of fireworks rocketed off here and there, and the whole city was celebrating founding day. Work at all the outposts had stopped, and everyone that could make it out of the city gathered in the streets except for a few critical personnel. Princess Shireen stood hand in hand with Captain Blake at the city hall's balcony and waved madly at the thousands of gathered at the plaza before the municipal building. Several cobras flew past in diamond formations overhead and peeled off into aerobatic stunts that wowed the crowd. 
Look at the sea of people. Shireen laughed as she waved at the masses. Thank you. Why the thanks? Blake asked from the side and gave wave once in a while. If it wasn't for you saving my people, Shireen replied, we would not have had this day today. Technically, it was the marines who saved your people, Blake grinned. I just reaped the rewards. Hey, so you want me to marry some marine? Shireen smiled dangerously. Well, I can do that. Blake broke in a cold sweat. No, 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 I, I, I was just joking. <laughs> Shireen eyed Blake with a sly smile. I got options now. But what? Blake was speechless as he stared at Shireen with giggling away. So you want to play, huh? Blake activated the microphone and cleared his throat. The roaring crowd and the music slowly died down and they waited for him to make a speech. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, today marks a new chapter in our lives. For we celebrate one year since the city which every one of you had helped build. Blake addressed the eager crowd with rejections of his image and speech were broadcast to other temporary displays all over the city. We fought long and hard, worked with sweat and blood to get this day where we have a safe place to live and grow in. Our children can play in the streets without a care in the world, and we have all the proper roof over our heads and food in our beddies because of what we had put our sacrifices and efforts into. The city isn't built for me or the princess. The city is for you, even if you are an elf, an orc, a beastman, a goblin, a troll, a dragon, or even the wind wolves. Everyone has contributed, and we live in harmony amongst the different races, because why? Blake paused as he looked at the crowd. We care about the city. Today is the day that the city was officially founded one year ago, yet it still bears no name. Blake said, we had run a poll for everyone to vote which name was best suitable for the city, and now we will officially unveil the results. Now the most voted name with 8,000 votes... I declare the city as Haven. Blake yelled over the roar of the crowd as they cheered wildly. Blake smiled and gestured for the crowd to quiet down before he continued. I have another news for everyone. The princess has accepted my marriage proposal and we will be wedded next autumn. Shireen gasped when she heard his announcement to the city about their marriage. Blake gave a wink and pulled her into his arms and kissed her in front of the crowd. The crowd went crazy and cheered and applauded madly. Bands beat their drums and music bled again throughout the city, while the cluster of fireworks erupted all over City Hall. I declare the opening of Founding Day. The John, Megan, and Akron looked around in wonder and felt their hearts beating wildly as they were dragged into a celebratory mood of the crowd, even though they were seated in a VIP viewing platform. They hadn't seen such a large-scale procession before as most parties or even public announcements of nobles and royalty would at most have a thousand or two thousand people gathered. But here, it clearly could be seen that the whole city was in celebration and out in force in the streets. They watched in awe at the aerobatic displays of the strange flying machines as they danced in the air with the dragons, columns of soldiers marching with precision that made them wonder if they were illusions made by magic. The next thing they saw, they made them gawk in surprise as two massive armored-looking monsters bearing six legs waltzed its way behind the marching troops. The crowd gasped in astonishment as they too had not seen the creatures before, while the humans seemed to be whooped with joy and excitement. What are those monsters? Megan leaned over to the side and asked a human dressed in a strange light gray coat with bits of colorful metal lining his chest. Monsters? The human looked surprised at the question before excitedly replying, Mecca, those are freaking spider tanks.
Liz Ragnar held onto an arm of Evelyn excitedly as they stood watching the procession of bands, dancers, performers, and even soldiers passing by the stand. She had seen and attended many balls and festivities of nobility due to her social status and popularity in the capital, and she was secretly impressed by the sheer scale of it all. Even the normally unresponsive Evelyn gave a small smile and waved along to the music which made Liz happy as she found out from Magister that Evelyn's soul had suffered some damage. Her initial hostility to the humans and the rebels faded as she was later shown evidence regarding the nature of the hero that she worshipped. She did not believe at the start, but slowly she slowly came to accept the truth as she recalls several incidents where the hero did something that she can't match it up to like a sudden disappearance or a strange female dried up corpse found in every town, village or city that they'd been through. She wondered why she did not pick up these disturbing signs at the time, but Magister Thorne consulted her, told her that it might be a glamour spell the hero had projected around him, making people trust him or naturally feel good near him. The news struck her mind deeply and she felt she can't trust anyone anymore and instead she sought Evelyn out to try and help her recover her damaged soul and uncover the truth. Today she granted leave by her probation officer to come and view the parade and enjoy some time off. Seeing the cheering and happy crowd, she felt herself being swayed and even started to join in the cheering. Irishval wore a wide-brimmed straw hat and clapped enthusiastically as she watched the parade passing by her stand. She smiled with pride when she saw the two prototype MAWs march past the amazed crowd as the children clung to the parents and pointed and asked questions. A sudden gush of wind against the stand of the two dragons swooped over the stand, their powerful wings kicking up a storm as they flew over the cheering crowd. Irishwell's hat blew off her head and a silvery hair whipped in the sudden wind. She flinched and tried to grab her hat, only to find someone had already helped her recover it from flying away. She stood up and thanked the stranger for his help, only to freeze as she recognized a human holding her hat out for her. You! Drake climbed up the stairs to view Stan to reach the top where he was supposed to relieve Kant of his security duty when suddenly a gust of wind picked up a flapping wings of the dragon hit him. He looked up and frowned at the underbellies of Blue Thunder and Restraws as the duo flew off somewhere over the stands and out of the corner of his eye, he saw a straw hat flying towards him. He quickly snatched the hat and turned to return it to its owner and froze as he stared into the clear, golden eyes. You! City Hall. Well, the naming of the city is settled. Blake raised a toast to the senior officers and the ministers gathered. To be honest, we humans have come to this place for over a year. Blake said as the gathered men and women listened. It's one year and four months to be exact since you crashed the ship. Someone yelled in a joking manner. <laughs> All of the humans laughed while the owls looked confused as they did not know the full story. Only knowing that the humans came from somewhere and were stranded here. All right, my fault, my fault. Blake raised his hands up in mock surrender. Well, I'm glad that we all made it till now, and I hope that we can continue to survive. Cheers. The kingdom of Pharrell, border with the great ocean plains, a battered company of soldiers and their families toiled against the snow as they made their way to the border to the great ocean plains. Dozens and dozens of wagons pulled by land dragons or muffalos left streak marks and paw prints in the deep snow. Wrapped in several threadbare blankets, Captain Boss leaned into his spear shaft and plowed through the snow, his breath turning white in the cold. He stopped and looked at the rear where hundreds of soldiers slogged on. 
His company had increased almost tenfold ever since coming to the two-nation alliance. It had grown larger than a company size, more like a small army as dozens of Meccan and Forel soldiers attached themselves to him after getting lost in the retreat. They had made use of the heavy snow and pulled back from the lines, only to get harassed by the Imperial Dragon Corps, which the two-nation alliance could barely counter with their weaker dragon species. Knowing that it would be safer to head to the outlying regions of the Pharrell Kingdom, as the Imperial Army would likely aim for the cities and larger towns while pushing towards the capital. Hence, Bors made the decision to head southwards towards the Great Ocean Plains, where the Orkin ruled. The border towns and villages were mostly abandoned due to the constant raids from the Orkin or due to the conscription of the Forel army. Bors was thinking to take one of the abandoned villages or towns and have their men and families rest for the winter before making their next plans. Even the Orkins wouldn't risk a raid during the winter months, which would give Bors's last company the time it needed to recover its strength. Taurus strolled up next to Bors with Captain Lancer in tow, and they shared a wineskin amongst themselves, warming their bodies with the burning sensation of alcohol down their throats. How far more? Bors asked as he looked at the struggling troops. The men are flagging and their families are barely able to keep up the pace. Lancer unrolled a map from the scroll case that he had on his side and frowned as he did some calculations on the position. I see half a day or more before we reach one of the towns. Bors nodded. Tell the company to halt. We rest for the day and continue tomorrow. Taurus nodded back and returned to the troops, calling the leaders to halt the company and set up camp. Captain, Lancer asked, do you think we will, um, survive? Bors sighed inwardly as he looked at the helpful expression on Lancer's young face. Of course we will survive. Send out riders to scout our path, Bors said. I don't want any surprises along the way. Yes, Captain. Lancer smiled. His spirits lifted after hearing Bors's assurances as he left to see to his orders. Bors looked at the number of dependents lagging behind the troops and wondered how they would feed everyone over the rest of the winter and how many would die tonight. Damn, Imperials. End of chapter. Chapter 226. Dead Frontier. Haven City Ballroom. Laughter and music filled the ballroom of the city hall while fireworks and other performances continued throughout the night of the city. Commander Ford took a glass of sparkling wine from the passing waitress and joined Captain Blake and Princess Shireen. Congrats on the engagement! He raised a toast to the smiling couple. Finally, you announced it officially. I think the people were going to tear you apart for dragging your relation on for so long. Blake rolled his eyes while Shireen poked him in the chest. Hmm, I did wonder, was I supposed to propose to you in your culture? Ha! <laughs> Blake snorted, very funny. Shireen and Ford laughed at Blake's expression, and they continued to make small talk while the party was in full swing. Greetings! Megan suddenly appeared before them with John and Akron in tow, and the best wishes to the captain and the princess for their ceremonial bond. Blake and Ford raised their brows in the unknown term, but mentally translated it as marriage, while Shireen smiled prettily and thanked her. This is Commander Ford, my second in command and chief of naval operations. Blake introduced Ford to Megan and Akron, whom they had not met before, Fleetmaster Megan and Fleetmaster Akron of the Isles. Ford gave a short bow as he was introduced and said to come in greeting, Well met. Hmm. Megan gave a floaty smile and locked her arm around Ford, who smiled back uncertainly. Tell me, Commander, 
What do you do as chief of naval operations? Blake and Shireen laughed as they watched Ford get led away by Megan. Dijon and Akron gave their congratulations and left to find their own entertainment. Blake grinned and watched Dijon walk away. Well, at least he took it well. Not so bad, Shireen scolded. He's not a bad guy. Wow, defending another guy in front of your husband, Blake teased. What husband, Shireen snorted. We're not married yet. <laughs> Blake hugged Shireen before asking, Will my lady care for a dance? Sounds <laughs> more like it. Drake sat down to the silver-haired girl and felt lost for words. The sense of feeling that he got from ever since she spotted her through the scope was something that he couldn't put to words. She was his only live target that he missed deliberately, and the feeling he got from her confused him. She was someone that he was trying to kill at the time. The girl sat watching him silently while he tried to put together words to break the awkward silence. Earlier in the day when they both met, she told him that she would wait for him here until they came to need to talk. After his duty was over, she hurried over and saw her sitting in the same stand while most of the crowd had left to celebrate in other places or gone for dinner. Now sitting next to her, he felt uncomfortable in his combat gear and unsure what to say when she broke the silence. I've been trying to find you for some time, she said. I wanted to thank you. Blake turned to look at the girl who stared back at him. The girl he remembered in his sights looked vastly different from what he could remember. She no longer had that haunted look that he remembered, and she was dressed casually in a human fashion. A large coat with a cold of sweaters and jeans. You saved me that day, she continued. But, 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 Drake stuttered. I, I, I was aiming to kill you. I know. She leaned back on the bench and kicked her feet. I actually wanted to die. But why? Blake asked in confusion. Why did you want to die? Because the Empire enslaved me, she explained. I was tired of all the dirty deeds the Empire used me for, and how many lives were sacrificed each time they used my powers. There is always a cost for using large-scale magic formations. She looked up at the blossoming display of fireworks in the night sky. Using the life force of hundreds and thousands of people, magic can be strengthened and supercharged, which increases the potency of the spell. I lost count of how many people that were sacrificed over the years for my magic. She turned and gave a sad smile at Drake, until I sensed the killing intent from you, and in my mind's eye, I saw you. She reached out a hand and cupped Drake's cheek. You were my angel of death, the one who would finally release me from the pain of living. Drake was startled as it felt the cold hands on his cheek and realized that she must have been sitting here the whole time, then the cold waiting for him. He quickly took her hand into his gloved palm and rubbed a cold hand. Come! He pulled her up and led her towards the stalls selling the hot beverages and snacks. He ordered a couple of hot drinks and hot dogs and sat her down next to an outdoor heater. Eat and drink. She looked surprised but followed his words, sipping on the hot drink and ate the hot dogs. Drake watched her face slowly regain a rosy flush before he introduced himself. By the way, my name is Drake. Nice to meet you. Kingdom of Pharrell border with the great ocean plains. The morning sun brought some warmth to the half-frozen men and women of the Lost Company as they prepared to set out from their camp. Ball sipped on a hot, weak tea from the felt better with the hot liquid warmed his belly. Captain, Taurus looked tired and his appearance unkempt, which was quite unusual. He was normally explicitly groomed even in battle. The journey must be taking a toll on him. 
We got a hot dozen frozen to death overnight, Doris sighed as he gave his report. Two of them were children, and five of them were more critically wounded. Also, there are more reports of people getting sick from the cold. Taurus took an offered tea from Bors and disregarded the scalding hot tea and just finished it all in one go. Bors nodded in silence as he expected the news. We have to push harder to reach the abandoned village. The sooner we get shelter, the better our chances of survival. Taurus nodded just as Lance had joined them. The scouts are back. They report the way is clear, but the snowfall last night might slow us down more. Good. Take all the available mounts and send them as an advance party ahead to clear the way for the weak and ill. Boss replied, move all the weak and ill onto the wagons. Both Taurus and Lancer nodded before they returned to the men, giving out Boss's orders. It was nearly evening when the company reached the outskirts of the village. The men and women cheered up visibly as they saw the village. As they entered the broken-down palisade and gates, they saw dilapidated buildings and skeletons of burnt-down houses. At the village square, a ramshackle well sat forlornly while dozens of cookfires were raging, made by the advance party as they had in the earlier to scout to prepare for the arrival of the rest of the company. Boss watched the men and women enter the village and gratefully accept bowls of hot soup and give a sigh of relief, knowing that tonight at least they would have some swarm of shelter. Divide the men up, have one party gather firewood, and another fix some of the buildings up, Boss told Taurus and Lancer. He picked up a sign covered in snow from the roadside and brushed it off the dirt and snow, revealing the name of the village, Dead Frontier. UNS Singapore, Captain's Quarters Blake gestured to the intelligence officer to start his report as he sat down at the chair. Lieutenant Tabar removed the paper report from his briefcase and handed it over to Blake who skimmed through them quickly. Our operation to insert agents into the adventurer guild in the city of Fallage has borne us some fruit. Tabor reported. We have two agents working inside the guild and also managed to contact the merchant, Otero, to help us facilitate the transportation of free slaves. In return for his services, we are providing him with several trade goods that can't be traced back to us, Tabor said. With these connections, we are able to form a more comprehensive picture of the Empire. So what's the latest update on the Empire side? Blake asked, his eyes still reading the documents. As of our current intel, Forledge currently is a garrison of 4,000 regular and auxiliary troops. Ford recited from the memory, also one Dragon Corps remaining stationed at the city. Blake raised an eyebrow at the numbers. Isn't that a bit low? It's the winter season, so it's normal for the local lords to stand down their troops since they can't afford or are unwilling to feed for them over the winter. Daver explained. And rarely any army fights a winter campaign due to increased supply difficulties and higher demands and resources at home. Blake nodded the understanding and gestured for Tabor to continue. Other reports state that the Empire top commander, the Rock, has successfully pushed all the way into the interior of Pharrell Kingdom and the Meccan Kingdom. Tavar said, We do not have an exact location and the outdated maps that were provided to us by Magister Thorne, but reports say that they are suspected to be within 200 kilometers away from both the kingdom's capitals. They are now waiting for the winter to end and the roads to open up before taking the final battle, after which it'll be just a mop-up operation for the Imperials. Blake put down the documents in his hands and asked, So what is the estimated time we have before the Empire turns his eyes over to us again? We estimate that it will have a successful in conquering both capitals within half a year by early summer, Tavar said. 
After that, another three to four months to pacify the area and mop up the remnants of the two kingdoms. Following that, another three months to move the troops back to retrain, recover, and resupply. Counting all of that, the fastest time that they can raise an army against us is a year, Tabor said, but we also have the advantage of a natural barrier of heavily forested terrain which houses deadly monsters and creatures. That would give us a buffer of another month or so. Blake nodded. One year. A lot can be done in one year. Good work. Blake praised Tavar for his efforts. Keep expanding the spy network. In terms of funding, I will have the accounts to prove some funds you need to expand. Thank you, sir, Tavar replied. Also, another thing, sir, if you look at the last part of the report... Blake picked back up the document and skimmed the last portion. Operation Freedom... Yes, sir, Dave asked to explain the operation. We gathered enough information to identify a major slave trade hub that supplies the entire south region with slaves. It's based in a city called Orwell's Point. Dave displayed a map in the city's location next to an inland sea. Slaves get transported to the city via river ships and get distributed all over the southern region, including Foldage. It is also located at the border of what they call the Great Ocean Plains and is a major trade hub for the Orcs. Hmm, Blake read the details in the Operation Freedom. You want to gather information and have the Marines liberate the city and free the slaves. Yes, sir, Tavor replied. On the success of the operation, we can deal damage to the Empire. The loss of the slaves will affect the economics of the Empire while we can increase our manpower with the freed slaves. End of chapter chapter 227 the gathering dead frontier border to the great ocean plains morale was high as the men and women worked at improving the abandoned villages conditions buildings too dilapidated were torn down and any visible materials were recycled to patch up those buildings still sturdy enough for habitation the old broken down village hall had its walls and roof mended and served as a communal sleeping quarters so that they can use the lesser fuel for heating. The badly rotted palisade was broken down to be used as firewood as they planned to build a new palisade once spring came. The broken well was fixed and the water was frozen solid and dirty and with the ground frozen too solid for them to dig another well out. So they began the laborious task of breaking the ice and emptying the well of its contaminated water to allow fresh, clean water to flow in again. Those with hunting skills set off into the snow to find animals to hunt out for food and hide, while others, armed with felling axes, chopped down trees for building materials and firewood. Boss watched proudly as the company as those labored without complaint or the tasks. In fact, the men were in high spirits as they sang and worked to rebuild the village. What's the total count? Balls asked as Taurus and Lancer approached him. A total of 1,806 soldiers, Taurus replied. More than half the men are from the Meccan and Foral while the rest are our boys. We have another 3,400 families dependents with us, Lancer said. The villagers will not be able to hold all of us unless we expand it. Boss nodded. How are our supplies? It should just be barely enough to last to the end of winter, Doris said, as long as the hunters could bring in game every once in a while. Water shouldn't be much of an issue. We found another two wells buried under the rubble and we're cleaning it out now, Doris continued. There is also a frozen stream further up the village and we can melt the snow to our needs. Problem is the number of shelters. 
Taurus gestured to the communal buildings. We placed the old and weak and young into the buildings, but it still has hundreds without any shelter over their heads. At this rate, we probably would cut down all the buildings here just to provide firewood to warm everyone. Taurus frowned. The weather is turning worse, and without proper shelter, many will freeze. Have everyone double up in the tents, Taurus said. This way we can have more than enough tents for everyone, and they can share their warmth at night. Taurus and Lancer nodded. See if you can cut more trees down before the weather worsens, Bors told him as they left. He looked up at the people working on improving their chances of survival and gave a prayer to the gods, looking at the grey skies as he prayed for the safety of his people. Haven, Burger Shack Dijon placed the tray of food down next to Megan and Akron, and he slumped down tiredly on the seat while rubbing his aching head. He had drunk so much last night and woke up with a hangover that threatens to split his head in half, despite being late morning. Megan smiled as she helped herself to Dijon's fries while he was in his torment. Who asked you to drink so much last night? Ugh, those damn Marnies, Dijon cursed. Now they know why they kept calling themselves jarheads. Is it because you didn't want to lose out into their drinking? Akron tactfully replied from behind his burger. Oh, my head hurts. Dijon leaned back at his seat. Everyone was drunk, even my crew. The celebrations for their founding day are quite impressive. Megan ignored Dijon as she spoke, with Akron who nodded. Yes, and the army's marching parade, Akron said absentmindedly. If only they would trade those thunder weapons of theirs to us. Hmm, I doubt they would, Megan replied. I probed that Ford last night, but he's surprisingly immune to my charms. Akron looked surprised at Megan's confession, but your spell should be more than capable to charm anyone. Yes, but it failed. Megan's eyes narrowed dangerously as the charm spell she used was a level 3 spell that she held a lot of pride in. But strangely, the human Ford seemed to be unaffected. Does it mean that the humans possessed the power to resist control spells? Little did they know that humans had found a way to nullify charm effects, as the princess herself had a passive ability to charm anyone of the opposite sex. Dr. Sharon had worked with Magister Thorne and the princess to come out with a protective spell that was able to nullify any charming effects. If not, the captain would have gone crazy due to him constantly fading his windle power save against the princess. Just as the John was lamenting his hangover and Megan brooding over her failure, the door jingled and several Air Force personnel walked in. What was eye-catching was a group of goblins with them, making Megan and Akron stare at the strange sight. The goblins went through the door excitedly, one of them dressed in a pair of rolled-up children-sized dark green overalls similar to what the pilots normally wear, and the rest in the dark blue overalls. The one in the dark green wore a grey sky mask and a pair of goggles over its bloated head and a pair of thick socks and protective padding. They queued up behind the customers who barely gave them a second glance and Megan recognized the one in the green as the goblin that was on board the strange flying machine. Greg the goblin tiptoed as he dropped a handful of credit chits on the counter. The coin-like tokens rattled against the countertop as the cashier counted the chits. He swallowed his saliva as he snatched a tray of Wurmburger set meal from the girl. Danky! He joined the gang from the Valkyrie 1 crew and support tech settled down and dug in. They did not join the celebrations last night as they were on active alert and only till the sun came out did they stand down from their duties. Hence, the whole crew of Valkyrie 1 decided to take one of the half-tracks and come to the burger shack for breakfast. 
Greg's sharp teeth easily shredded the burger in a few chomps, and he licked the sore strained from his fingers to its rennish and burping. God damn it, Greg! The pilot from the Valkyrie 1, Lieutenant Commander Peter, cursed as he waved the stench of the bad breath away. We're trying to eat you! <laughs> Sorry! Greg giggled with the rest of the goblin text as he helped himself to a cheese fries. Mmm. When Greg was first offered a chance to redeem himself when he was caught with the Maonis on the beach with dozens of others, he quickly took the offer, as he somewhat knew that if he didn't, he would be killed by these long legs. To his surprise, he and the others who took the offer were treated like kings. They all each have their own beds and even a table and chair. To goblins, this was super luxury as they lived in overcrowded dens, underground or in caves on the goblin city, where they had to fight amongst themselves for every little thing. Two weeks that followed were a blur of constant surprises to Greg and the others. The machines and the vehicles were extraordinary to them. The fascination and adoration of these strange devices hooked them, and they looked upon the strange short-eared humans as near-god beings. As he had shown the higher level of initiative, he got aside to fly on board one of the god machines. Immediately, his status amongst his skin rose as they viewed him with envy and admiration. He found that some of the log legs distrusted him at the start, but over time, they soon joked and chit-chats with him and the rest of the goblins. They called this interaction as friendship and friends with things that were alien to the goblins. But Greg loved it. He no longer felt that he was part of the cog in the machine, a word he learned from the humans. In Goblin City, as long as you are stronger and more vicious, you gain more respect and admiration. But here, there wasn't the need to be vicious to others. Even the marines that caught him became friends with him, and they always cursed each other, but he knew that they were just jokes. And when they stood up for him against the others who distrusted goblins, he nearly teared. And he decided that having friends were the best feeling ever, and he would do anything to keep his friends safe. Greg watched with satisfied smile as the rest of the crew bantered and joked over the meal and felt truly at home within these people. With a massive flutter of wings, Blue Thunder settled himself down next to the half-track parked in the burger shack. Hmm, who else is here? Ristras landed with a grace next to him and poked him with his wing while shivering. Let's order quickly, I don't like the cold. Hmm, okay. Blue Thunder waddled over to the drive through counter and poked his head next to the window. Hello? Manager, the dragons are here again. Irishwal von Aston rubbed away the grains of sleep from her eyes and unwillingly crawled out from the thick, cozy folds of her blanket. She shivered as her bare feet touched the cold floor, and she quickly donned on a pair of fluffy slippers. She looked to herself in the mirror in the toilet and turned on the tap, and splash cold water shook her awake, and she smiled to her own reflection as she remembered the talk that she had with the soldier Drake. They both talked till it was very late and had to return to the barracks while she returned home. He promised to meet up with her again later today, and she was looking forward to the meeting. Irishwell hummed happily to herself as she recalled back to what they talked about the night before. They talked about many things, from their families to their daily lives to what food they liked. To Irishwell, it was like suddenly having an old friend and they were updating each other about their lives. And before they knew it, it was close to 1am and Drake had to rush back to return to the barracks. She glanced at the clock where the two hours had promised meeting. Oh dear, what am I going to wear? Drake tugged at an uncomfortable, starched uniform collar as he got off the jeep. His buddy, Kant, gave a wide grin and a thumbs up. Ha! Good luck, lover boy! 
before he drove off leaving Drake alone. The streets still held the traces of celebrations from the night before, while the music drifted over the other places that were still having celebrations ongoing. He stood at the bus terminal as he waited nervously for someone that he had just met last night. It felt unreal to him that he felt that they were like long-lost friends reunited. He tugged at his uniform and collar again, and suddenly someone tapped on his shoulder. Hi, waited long. Irishwal's silvery hair was tied up into a long ribbon in a ponytail, with a simple coat and a long dress and a boots. Hi, Blake was stunned by her smile. Let's go. Irishwal grabbed his arm and dragged him along. Let's eat something. I'm famished. Sure. Blake smiled and allowed Irishwal to drag him along. Where are we going for lunch? Burger Shack. End of chapter. Chapter 228 Questioning Plans 13 kilometers offshore from Far Harbor. Snow constantly drifted down from the downcast skies, turning visibility low. The barge rumbled as it plowed through the windswept waves, relying on a very basic beacon system and radar to navigate the seas. The beam of light flashed through the snow and suddenly a large shadow loomed out. The pilot of the barge lowered the speed of the boat and aimed the bow of his boat at the lights. As the barge came closer to the lights, the shadow turned into an island and a simple wooden light tower. The pilot docked the boat next to the floating dock made under airtight barrels, planks, and reinforced steel scaffolding. Secured next to the floating dock was a larger floating platform with dozens of crates stacked together and workers wearing bright orange life vests, waiting for the barge to be tied up and secured. The load of miners disembarked from the barge and the rest mated for the floating platform started to load the crates of energy stones on board carefully in the wet docks. The newly arrived miners went up to the tent on the one side exposed to the elements where the foreman sat with the table. The foreman looked up at the new arrivals and gave out orders and punch cards, directing them to a supervisor who would look after them. The miners swallowed the supervisor and entered the wilted jungle. The cold had killed most of the flora on the island and the snow left a coat of white over the frozen vines and broken trees. The supervisor started to assign duties to the miners, teaching them how to carefully dig the clear, the luminous crystals out of the ground. Dozens of patches of freshly dug and covered soil littered all over the area. While those crystals yet to be dug out were mapped out with white and red striped tapes. The energy stones grew as deep as nine meters underground. Those crystals were not yet fully developed and had an umbilical cord or the organ attached to it. Those crystals were not to be touched and were cordoned off with the red tape. Dr. Sharon and Magister Thorne theorized that the island whales created these crystals to store energy over the winter and also for long-distance migration. They could only guess as they have no concrete evidence or proof as to why the island whales produced these energy stones. The miners, upon extracting the crystals, stored them into a wooden crates where another group of workers would ferry them down to the shore to be loaded onto the barges. As the men worked, the island whales hibernated in the cold, their heads and flippers motionless as they dreamt what island whales dream. UNS Singapore Conference Room As for the Operation Freedom, Major Frank patted a folder of documents in his hand. You are proposing an airdrop into a battalion of marines to capture Orwell's Point. Yes, sir, Intelligence Officer Tavar replied politely. With no other support, Frank's eyes narrowed as he dropped the folder down at the table. No UAV, no air, no artillery, or even any chance of reinforcements. Sir, 
There is no way any of our land vehicles would drive all the way from here to Orwell's Point in that kind of terrain. Tavar pointed out to the map where the whole stretch of the uncharted forest lay between the two cities. Even if we force our way through the forest, it'll take a week or two for the entire convoy to hit Orwell's Point. Tavar explained, the whole operation, cost, time, and resources would not be worth the effort. So, are you proposing an airdrop? Commander Ford cut in before Major Frank could retort. Why? First, we have the new FB-1 Mariner, which, with the extended fuel tanks, can drop off a platoon of Marines, Tavos said. With the Air Force now possessing five of these planes, we can effectively airdrop in a company and have enough supplies to support the company of Marines on the field. Secondly, the one-way trip by air takes only six hours, compared to the one to two weeks over land. Tavo continued, if we removed all the unnecessary equipment and armor, we can extend that range of the mariners further. With the planes doing a full round trips within 24 hours, we can have a full battalion and enough supplies for the attack on Orwell's point. Tavo finished. Yes, but the whole point of the op is to rescue the slaves, Frank said. How are we going to do that without any vehicles? That brings me to the second part of the op. Tavo smiled. We hold the city, and since the city is right next to an inland sea, we can land our mariners there. We let up the slave ships in and ambush them, Tavo continued, and then at the same time the mariners will do constant trips to pick up the slaves and also drop off supplies and reinforcements. At the end of the day, Orwell's Point will become a territory of the UNM. After the meeting had dispersed, Ford stayed back with Blake in the room. So what do you think of the chances of this operation? Blake asked. Frankly, I'm quite optimistic about our success, Ford admitted. Tavar is turning out to be quite the intel officer. Blake nodded. I'm only worried that the enemy spots them before the whole battalion is dropped in. Ford gave a shrug. Well, they just have to drop off somewhere less visible then. Hmm, maybe we should start laying plans for a highway to Orwell's Point, Blake said. If we're going to hold that city, it will be good to have a direct road to it rather than constantly relying on airdrop supplies. It would also help with the development of the city in the long run, Blake continued, but the issue would be the forest itself. I am afraid that it will not be easy to construct a highway there due to the monsters. True, the creatures of the forest are no joke, Ford stated, and we can't afford to commit so much of our troops to guard the highway either. All right, let me think about this first, Blake said. So how's the island whales or turtles doing? They appear to have gone into hibernation, Ford answered. They are just sleeping there while we mine the crystals off their backs. So far, there aren't any incidents happening, Ford said. We did not touch any of those still growing crystals, and also we harvest only two-thirds of the crystals to prevent any harm to the creatures, in case our depletion of the crystals will affect their health in some way. Good. Keep me posted should anything happen, Blake replied. Well... The other thing is Ordnance has come up with a simple depth charge device, Ford grinned. They should be testing it out within a week or two. Draco Air Base Commandant's Office Commander Tommy rubbed his tired eyes as he stared at the computer display screen continuously for several hours. He yawned and stood up and stretched and looked at the drawing of a helicopter design he came up with. He had come up with a design powered by twin turboshaft engines with four blade main and tail rotors. It can be used in both utility and combat roles, and it would greatly improve the air power to reach once it was in production. Now, he just needs to get this over to special projects and get them to fabricate it out. The Academy of Science and Magic 
Liz hugged several folders of papers and books against her chest as she entered the class of 21E. The class stood up as one and greeted her before they sat down. Liz smiled as she looked at the children just a few years younger than her and felt a sense of achievement. I guess being a teacher does have its moments. She thought to herself as she wrote on the chalkboard, Advanced Magic Theory. Initially, she was shy when she first was teaching the class alone. The students seemed to be uninterested in her classes as they viewed her age to be too young to be even knowledgeable in magic. Yet, one time there was a live demonstration of magic casting, she shocked her class with her spells, which turned out to defiant class into admiration. After that incident, her class became very attentive and even active in asking her questions, both about magic and even personal. At first, she felt swamped by the attention. She used to be a focus of envy by many of her peers, but they did that at a distance. Her students most likely did not know of her status and past, chatted with her with an innocence which slowly she got used to. As you all know, magic came into existence by the grace given to us by the gods many, 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 many years ago, Liz said, but as the gods disappeared, the gift was still within us. It has weakened till the point that it is not every one of us is born with the aptitude for magic. Some of you may have more mana capacity, while others have a tiny grain in their bodies, Liz continued. But even with a large capacity for mana, you need to know how to form the magic. She raised her hand up and a flicker of flames appeared. A level zero spell, which almost everyone can do, is easy to form as long as you understand what you want it to do. In this case, fire. But if you want to cast a different spell, Liz said, this is where visualization works. You imagine what you want and focus your magic and tell the spell chant to create that spell. Liz explained, just blindly chanting a spell will not allow you to draw out the full power of that spell. That is why so many mages venture for on adventures to learn and experience the dangers out in the world, as seeing new things and wonders help a mage better visualize his or her spells. Liz smiled as she gave a wave of her hand and the flame turned into a soaring room before it vanished. What I just did was the same level zero spell, but I visualized it as a room. Liz explained. Magic is not dead. You just have to learn how to properly control it and wield the mana inside you. As her ability to control mana was top-notch, that was why she could cast multiple magic missiles easily. The students in her class ooed when they saw her skillful manipulation of mana. Teacher Liz, did you travel on adventures too? Hearing that question, Liz felt a pain in her chest as she remembered her party with the hero. Even the death of Stab hit her hard, despite the two of them never seeing eye to eye and always arguing. And now what was left of the party was only Evelyn, who had her soul damaged, allegedly, by the hero himself. She doesn't know who to trust on the matters of the hero, and the strange humans isn't really helping much. She looked at the hopeful eyes of her students and sighed inwardly before answering, Yes, I traveled a bit as an adventurer. Tell us some stories! The class erupted excitedly at the news that their teacher used to be an adventurer. Most students dreamt of growing up to become a dragonflyer. Well, I can, but after this, I want you all to promise me to practice hard on your mana control, okay? Liz tried to be stern. The class laughed and agreed while Liz shook her head and started telling them of a quest that she did with the hero. Except she omitted the hero. She looked at the innocence of the children who listened with rapt attention to her story and started to question the things that she had done in the past. End of chapter Chapter 229 
Operation Freedom. Draco Air Base Training Hangar 3. Private Slow held onto his yellow strap that was hooked onto a cable overhead as he stood in a queue behind several of his platoon mates. 30 seconds, the platoon sergeant yelled as everyone echoed after him. Stand by. The overhead light switched to green followed by a buzzer and the platoon sergeant yelled, Go, go, go! The first man walked out of the wooden frame door and hopped off the platform before moving out of the way for the next person behind him. Slow shuffled up and his platoon mates in front of him and hopped off the platform one by one. When it was his turn, the sergeant gathered the yellow static line from Slow and hopped off and landed on the ground before they gathered next to the rest of his platoon. The weeks of long exercises had started off as lectures and videos on parachuting off an aircraft before moving on to practical motions like what Slow and his platoon were doing. They had been practicing hopping off fake aircraft hatches and doing jumps off a tall platform similar to a fly fox zipline to how to do landings by rolling onto wet ground as the snow melts. Slow heard from the sergeants that once the weather clears up, they'll be moving to do real jumps off airplanes. Slow had nearly panicked when he stood on the top of several stories high platform and the human corporal screamed and yelled in his ear to jump. He had closed his eyes and leapt off the platform and felt his heart in his throat before a sudden jerk of his harness against the zipline nearly made him bite his tongue off. The first jump was scary, but the following other jumps he actually found quite fun and thrilling zipping down the line. Master Sergeant Pike stood on the side with Major Frank, observing the men training for the parachute wings. What do you think? Frank asked. Looks good so far, but it's only practical. Pike repelled, but I say that they should be ready to do the first jump next week. Frank nodded. Once 2nd Battalion finishes their training, 1st Battalion and 3rd Battalion will leave to the last. They will take point on the attack, 1st Battalion will be on standby, while 3rd will hold the 4th back home. Frank confirmed. Damn, we need more troops, Pike shook his head. Two-thirds of our troops committed to an attack, with a spring here soon in a couple weeks. Those damn feral goblins will be raging all over the place. Frank smiled. We are way better than before now that all the workers and outposts are required to be trained in part of the LDF or local defense force. They can hold the goblins easily behind fixed defenses and mortar support till the air force comes in with air support, Frank said. The third will act as a hammer while the LDF has the anvil. You saw their performance, Frank pointed out. They can do it. Pike nodded grudgingly. Those LDF troops might not be crack troops on the field, but yeah... They should be able to hold their own until support comes. We don't have to worry so much about the home front, Frank continued. I only worry about the second not being able to take over Orwell's Point before the rivers are open to the Empire boats to be used. The rivers leading to the inland seas from the Empire would normally be frozen or water levels drop well below the depths of the river barges and ships to travel. Once winter ends and spring comes, the melting ice in the mountains and surroundings will raise the water levels of the rivers and open up the channels for ship travels. The plan was for the 2nd Battalion to airdrop in 20 kilometers away from Orwell's Point at the Ocean Plains, and once the whole 2nd Battalion had landed, they would move to capture Orwell's Point before the rivers recovered. This would ensure that no ships from the Empire would arrive till the 2nd Battalion was well established and dug into the city, and also no news of the attack could travel back by ship to the Empire. The attack would be complete surprise to the enemy, and any ships coming down to Orwell's Point would have to both the ship, the crew, and cargo seized and impounded by the 2nd. 
The next phase would be battalion reinforcing the city if needed via the float planes, which would land on the docks with supplies too, and the planes would then return the slaves who were willing to work under the UNM. The Air Force would also be sending Blue Thunder and Rastras along, but they would travel at a slower pace as they would be carrying extra equipment along for the Marines. The Dragons would take the role of observers and reconnaissance duties for the Marines on the ground. The logistics of the operation normally would be easy to handle back on Earth, but with limited air capacity and lack of proper roads, it became a challenge for Quartermaster Chen, who was ensuring his team had calculated the weight of every equipment, two bullets to fit on the aircraft. Three combat companies and one support company, Frank said, think they can handle anything that comes their way. So, I personally trained these men, Pike proudly declared. I can ensure that they'll take Orwell's point without any troubles. The cold air of winter slowly had gotten replaced by the warmer air currents that swept from the east. The dull grey skies were no longer seen as the clouds dispersed and the striking clear blue skies revealed themselves once more. The heavy droning roar of engines resonated deep into the very bones of Slow as he sat on the edge of his seat. His bulky field pack hang on his knees and his chest sat a reserve chute while the main parachute sat at his back. The men's M1 mage lock was secured snugly against their belly just below the reserve chute, but the buttock of the weapon was removed and kept in one of the pouches. While for Slow, his MG1 was stored with the Yasagi, and he only had a revolver strapped to his thigh. On his side sat other men of his section, shorter by more than a head to him, but as some of them dozed away or exchanged nervous jokes. Slow tried to sleep, but the constant drone of the engines made him hard to fall asleep, so, indeed, he sat there and listened to the banter between his section mates. Suddenly, a buzzer buzzed and the interior of the modified FB-1 Mariner glowed red. Make ready, the platoon sergeant roared over the drones of the engine. Ten minutes, he held up ten fingers. The men roused themselves up and those asleep were jolted awake. Stand up! The troops lumbered to their feet and they were heavily burdened down by their equipment and gear. Hook up! The sergeant made a hooking gesture with his finger. Slow reached over and snapped his static line to the overhead cable. Equipment check. He patted his harness and yelled. The men, including Slow, double-checked their gear and harness, making sure that their buckles and straps were properly locked and in place before checking the backs of their buddies before them. Sound off for equipment check. Seven okay, six okay, five okay, four okay, three okay, two okay, one okay. Slow section called out as they finished their checks, while the other sections in their platoon did the same. The air crew hit the hatch controls and the door slid to the side. He leaned out checking the exterior of the plane, before running his hands over the hatch to ensure that there were no sharp edges. The platoon's lieutenant did a follow-up check before he ducked back into the plane. The co-pilot sat in the controls of the FB-1 Mariner and looked over his gauges. Wind 210, prepare for drop. He spoke to the crew at the cargo bay. One minute, the pilot called out at the bay while the marines echoed. Thirty seconds. Move up, as the air crew of the marines stepped up to the hatch. Five, four, three, two, one. The jump lights turned green and the air crew yelled, Go, 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 go! The first man stepped off the plane and kept his hands to his sides while the wind whipped him away from the fuselage. His static line ripped the chute open as he left the plane and his chute deployed seconds later. 
One by one, the men stepped off the plane, and finally, it was Slow's turn. They had done two practice jumps already, and he loved it. He grinned with excitement and eagerly stepped off the plane, and his chute deployed once he was away from the plane. Dozens and dozens of dark gray parachutes that were made from spider and silk floated gently down from the sky. If locals not of Haven saw the spectacle, they would be stunned and shocked as they would not understand nor comprehend what was going on. The drop zone was an area of arid grassland where the grass was frozen and yellowed from the cold. Slow hit the ground in a textbook roll and grunted as he rolled over a stone. He ignored the pain on his side and quickly collected his billowing chute. Soon the field was filled with the platoon chutes and the men quickly packed the chutes together. Several others headed to the airdrop crates and retrieved their weapons and supplies stored in them. Slow quickly headed to the squashed object that had landed. He quickly removed the straps and restrained the Asagi, happily unfolded itself. The little golem stretched its limbs out in a manner like a dog before it rubbed itself against Slow who patted it on its head. Next, he retrieved a package secured to its back and removed the MG-1 stored there and popped the box of ammunition and loaded the weapon. The men came over to Slow with their loads of parachute and they piled it on the back of Asagi, which made it look comical as the pile of parachutes were three times the size after they tied down the security its back. All right, boys, the lieutenant said, spread out and dig in. We're on the first wave. The second wave won't be here in another ten hours, so make yourselves comfortable. Radio operators, set up your comms and put it under cover. Lieutenant continued and gave out orders to the men and went about the duties. Sergeants, look out for your men. The sergeants took over and they assigned the men to cover the sectors while digging in. The endless plains stretched out as far as the eye could see, and somewhere in the distance of their objective, Orwell's Point. UNS Singapore Command Bridge Sir, Operation Freedom has begun. The first wave of drop troops have touched down and the mariners are returning for the second wave in five hours, the operator reported. Blake nodded as he looked over the region of the tactical plot. Any reports or contacts? Negative, sir, the operator replied. A radio relay system had been set up by having the Dragon's Drop Relay antenna down on the canopy of the uncharted forest as a temporary measure. What's the ETA for the Dragons to rendezvous with the Drop Marines? Blake asked. Another four hours, sir, Major Frank reported in from his operations center, located in the Marines' Camp Alpha. All right, keep me updated of any changes, Blake said to Frank's image. It's high time we kick some Empire Monday blues away. End of chapter chapter 230 modern warfare Orwell's point dazar yawned as he stretched his cold body after the morning of standing guard at the drawbridge he rubbed his cold hands together with a shaft of his spear and stomped his fur-lined boots to relieve them his partner jun leaned against the wall and as close as he could to the dying embers of the brazier while hugging his spear and half dozing away Dasa rubbed the wind-bitten face and glanced up towards the sky, which had started to brighten, and suddenly there was a clatter of metal. He turned to the noise and saw Jun had slumped over to the ground and knocked, knocked off the brazier. Dasa laughed, thinking that Jun had fallen asleep on his feet and fell down. He reached out to help his friend up with an 8-gram, 6.5mm, copper-nickel-coated lead bullet slammed through the thin, low-quality steel leather helmet. 
the bullet velocity, despite being lowered slightly by the suppressor, was way more than enough to penetrate the steel helmet of the guard and drill through the skull before exiting out the other side of the helmet and spending the remainder of its energy against the thick gates, accompanied by a small spray of blood and brain matter. Go! Several shadowy figures emerged from the moat of the surrounding of the wall, their damp uniforms stuck to their bodies as they quickly covered the short distance to the walls. Sergeant Mills slammed his body against the wall and checked the two kills before nodding at his men. Get rid of these coals, he said with disgust as the red-hot coals were burning and cooking the fallen god, who had knocked them over himself as he fell. Raider 1 to Lord Actual, in possession over. Mills reported his progress to the battalion commander, Captain Joseph Token, who was just recently promoted from first lieutenant to captain of the second command. Lord Actual to Raider 1, but your sit rep, the battalion commander asked. Raider 1, so far so good, Mills replied. Guards surrounding the drawbridge and gate have been neutralized. He looked up at the drawbridge and said, No alarms as of yet, over. Joseph replied back, Raider 1, Lord Actual, secure the gatehouse and clear the two gate towers. Copy, over. Raider 1, roger that out. Mills nodded and gestured to his section into action. All right, guys, we're going to go up the walls, Mole said, and his men took out the grappling hooks from their backpacks. The hooks were fired with compressed air, making a dull thump. The three-pronged hooks shot up the walls as the cables whipped out after them. The rubber-padded prongs hit the top of the wall and the raiders reeled them in, the prongs barely making any noise. Once the prongs were holding firm, they attached a roll of folded-up ladder that self-deployed itself upwards with tiny motors running up the cables. Go, go, go! Mills hissed as he secured the ladders to the ground. Mills followed his men up and they climbed the ladders as fast and silently as they could. The city walls reached the height of roughly nine meters and the men made the climb in less than two minutes. Vaulting over the battlements, Mills saw his men had spread out in the security cordon. Their suppressed M2 mage bitter already claimed the lives of the guards that were dozing away. Raiders split up to hit the towers. Mills whispered and his men split into three groups, the two that sent off to the towers on each side of the wall. At the same time, he led one of the teams and headed to the walls towards the gatehouse where the controls of the drawbridge were. They found a stout-looking wooden door reinforced with iron bands blocking their way into the room. One of the men tried to open the door, but it was locked from the inside, and he just shook his head at Mills silently. Nam, we need to breach this. Raider 3 to Lord Actual, guards at report cleared, moving in to secure the port, over. The radio at the temporary command post of 2nd Battalion crackled. Lord Actual, Raider 4, east gate is in our hands, over. Raider 2 to Lord Actual, west gate secured, no enemy contact remaining, over. Joseph smiled as he listened to the reports coming from the infiltration teams, who were sent ahead to clear the guards and secure the key entry points into the city. Compared to how wars were waged just a year ago, this was like magic. More than magic, as magic couldn't even replicate what was being done here in the command post, Joseph thought. The battlefield management and control system taught and implemented by the humans are short of amazing. It was complicated to understand at first, but once you learned how it works, everything just falls into place. Joseph watched the support staff move markers of icons and friendly troops on the map of the area. The map was taken just 12 hours ago by the dragons which flew overhead of the city and with a super high resolution camera. 
Even as he stood there, one of the dragons was providing Overwatch with thermal imagery which one of the monitors was displaying a live feed that was going on on the unaware city. Lord Actual to all raiders, good work. Hold your stations while Raider 1 drops the bridge. Over. Joseph took the headset off the radio and announced, Echo, Falcon, Griffin, stand by to attack. Joseph spoke to the rest. Hawk, prepare to provide the fire and hit the enemy barracks. Over. Roger that. Mills sharply gestured to his men to plant the breaching charges at the door. His men quickly removed a couple blocks of explosives and glued it against the hinges and waited for Mills to command. Several minutes later, Mills Com came in. Team 1, tower cleared. Over. Team 2, tower cleared. Roger, Raiders rendezvous at gate. Mills ordered. We're going loud. Make ready. He turned and nodded at his men who held the firing device in his hand. Fire in the hole. The explosives were detonated by an electric primer and the door vanished in a cloud of fire and splinters. The men leaned against the pressure and the blast and they charged in a second later. Four men were found in various stages of confusion inside the room, while one laid bleeding out on the ground had a portion of the door embedded inside of him. Mole stepped over the dying man and they shot the rest of the guards one by one. Dropped the bridge and raged the portcullis. At the same time, Captain Joseph's voice came over the comms. All Raiders report, what's going on? Raider 1 to Lord Actual had to go loud. Mills explained as his men worked the levers and cranks off of the bridge. Door is barred in. Bridge is coming down now, advised to move the rest of the boys in fast. Lord Actual, roger that. The chains holding the bridge rattled and the lever was removed and the bridge swung down and crashed loudly upon the stone ground in the early morning. If the explosion didn't wake up these jerks, they surely would do the trick, Mills thought. Contact! Mills' comm rang out. Team 1 and Team 2 engaging the enemies at the gates. Go! Mills ordered and fired a burst of the mechanism that lifted the bridge, ensuring that the drawbridge could not be raised again. As for the poor colors, there was nothing that they could do except destroy the whole damn thing. Mills emerged from inside the walls and saw dozens of Empire guards already dead, lying on the streets in front of the gates. His men were prone on top of the wall and firing in controlled aim shots, and the confused guards who woke up and came out to see what the ruckus was. Just at this moment, several waiting screams came overhead as one of the structures that had identified as a barracks exploded into a smoke as mortar support from Hawk Company landed around it. Raider 1 to Hawk, on target, fire for effect, Moles yelled into the comms. Seconds later, another volley of mortar shells landed in a partially damaged stone structure, the mortar shells kicking up clouds of dirt and rock as high-explosive warheads destroyed the roof of the barracks. Joseph watched the thermal imagery and saw several bright flashes on the screen where the mortars hit, and white, colored bodies could be seen unmoving laying here and there. The higher body temperature of people could be seen easily against the cold background of the surroundings, while the marines in the city all had infrared beacons that displayed their locations. Target Alpha destroyed, the artillery command and control operator reported. Switch to Target Bravo. Joseph nodded in confirmation and the operator who spoke into his mic through the support company's mortar batteries. Not long, Joseph heard a thump of mortars firing and looked at the screen where the intel had pointed at the secondary barracks for merchants and slaver guards. The cluster of white bodies flattened down and the screen flashes of white suddenly appeared over them. Echo, Falcon, Griffin, Operation Freedom is a go. Repeat, Operation Freedom is a go. 
Operation Freedom is a go, the message repeated over the platoon's comms clearly, and the company lieutenant turned and grinned. All right, Godslayers, move out. Hurrah! The marines roared as they charged up from the prone position and onto the causeway that led to the drawbridge. The city's warning bells were ringing at this time, and several fires caused by the mortars lit the city up while the steepy residents poked their heads out in confusion from the windows and doorways. The main stronghold in the middle of the city was targeted next after the outlaying barracks were bombed by the mortars which had pre-sighted the targets earlier in the day before. Now the airburst shells bragged the assembled knights and imperial soldiers who mustered in the inner courtyard of the stronghold. Several imperial majors attempted to shield the men, but after several hits from the mortars, their mana was completely drained and the shields failed and the dying started all over again. Small clusters of guards and imperial soldiers approached from the alleyways and side streets as they responded to the ringing of the bells, only to be taken down by an accurate fire from the shotguns and bolt actions of the marines. The 2nd Battalion had several objectives to capture and secure, namely the slave fence, the stronghold, the east gate, west and south drawbridge, docks, warehouse district, adventurers guild, merchants hall and the local governor's mansion. The barracks and slavers' accommodations were tasked to Hawk Company to destroy, with mortars whose ammunition was limited as they were carried in by the dragons, after which they were to hit the stronghold and pin any reinforcements down till the major objectives were secured. Following that, they would provide fire support for any calls. 2nd Battalion split its companies and platoons as they pushed in from these three directions, one company from each gate. The west and east gates each had a small wooden bridge over the moat wide enough for a single wagon to pass it and had a mechanism allowed the bridges to be easily destroyed by the city guard should the city be attacked. Only the south gate had a proper drawbridge, and with the guard silenced before they knew that they were attacked, the west and east bridges were open for Falcon and Griffin to enter. Joseph smiled proudly as he looked at the stream of reports coming in from all of the platoons as they secured streets and crossroads of the city. The sun had just peeked out from the horizon and they had already captured two-thirds of the city already in just within an hour or so. Damn! I love modern warfare! End of chapter Chapter 231 You funny guy! UNS Singapore Conference Room, Operation Freedom, minus 25 days. Orwell's Point was roughly 30,000 people in the city on average, but during winter and early spring the number drops to half, Lieutenant Tavar said, as merchants and slavers rarely do business due to the rivers and roads being closed due to winter. And at least 5,000 of those people are now slaves. The remainder are mostly guards, soldiers and service providers. Tavar tapped the overhead image of the city. The 2nd Battalion has to capture all the major points in the city, which will effectively allow them to control the residents of the city. Tavar detailed his plan. Control the food stalls in the warehouses, prevent information from leaking out by taking the Merchant's Hall and Adventurer's Guild. Tavar listed out the important locations. Take out the stronghold which the elite of the Empire troops reside in and capture the local governor in his mansion. Hold the docks and the gates to prevent anyone from leaving or escaping. Tavor continued, and hold each intersection of the streets control the movement. Once the city is in full control, Tavor's map changed colors, which divided the city into several sections. Marines are to do a house-to-house search for any Imperials still hiding. With the streets cordoned off, the search parties will flash out any remnants of the Imperial forces. The map sectors slowly turn green one by one to indicate the areas being cleared. 
Once they have totally secured the whole city, the second part of the mission comes in. The marines will dig in and lure any trade to the slave ships in, Tevas said, and they will be impounded and the goods seized. Any other merchants coming in via land route will also have their goods searched and confiscated if deemed valuable for our war effort. In the meantime, the city defenses will be upgraded and the slaves will be given the option to leave or join us. Tevar looked up from his notes that he'd gathered up of brass. Once the city is secured, the FB-1 mariners will come in to resupply the troops with ammunition. Once we have fortified the city, Tevar smiled coldly, a short of a tactical nuke, nothing can dig the entrenched marines out. It's high time to stop being nice. Orwell's Point, Operation Freedom, plus three hours. Sergeant Mills nodded to his team as they stacked up against the building walls with a stout wooden door between them. They were clearing the western sector of the city, when suddenly a volley of crossbow bolts was fired at them, resulting in two men getting injured. Luckily, the reinforced steel ballistic plates protected the vital points and the men just bolt barely dented their armor. The two men got injured were hit in the arm and leg when dragged off under the cover of the building while they screened for a medic. The attack platoon reacted swiftly and fired at the suspected building windows, the heavy bullets shattering the wooden windows and the lime plaster. Mills quickly ordered some men to follow him and they advanced to the door of the building under the cover of fire. Breach it! Mills yelled at one of his men who rapidly fired his shotgun at the top of his bottom hinges, shattering the iron and the wood. Go! He snapped the orc next to him. Go, go, go! Private Slow charged forward with the full body weight behind the size 16 boots. He sent the wooden door flying off its hinges and he stomped in, taking three steps and kneeling down while sweeping his MG1 to the left of the room while Mills entered right behind him and swept his weapon to the right. The room was a typical of the local dwelling and the fireplace and dining table had chairs while the doorway was leading to the kitchens. A staircase sat on the right leading up to the second story. Clear! Mills gestured towards the kitchen while he aimed his weapon at the stairs, just as several footsteps stormed from the upper story and a pair of booted feet appeared from the stairs. The imperial soldier, dressed in half-mail with a crossbow dangling at his side and holding a sword charged down the stairs, only to have Mills pop a couple shots into the imperial's body, sending him toppling down the steps. He stepped over the dead body and snapped the weapon up to the second floor, covering the stairs. He heard the creaking of wood on the second floor and yelled in common, Drop your weapon and come down with your hands up. Surrender now. Damn you to the thirteen hells, came back the reply and Mills looked at the orc, which he recognized as slow and gave a shrug. Well, I tried. He gestured to the ceiling with the building and slow who grinned. Fire there. Slow shouldered his MG1 and fired a short burst at the spot where they heard the creak. The high-powered 8.6mm rounds easily punched through the plaster and wood, tearing a fist-sized holes in the ceiling. Blood suddenly flowed down from the holes and Mills nodded, and they advanced up the stairs carefully. Reaching the top, they saw a dead soldier pitched on this landing with a shattered crossbow at his side. Mills gestured to slow to cover the back while he checked on the one of the two rooms there. He ghosted in through the door and found an empty bedroom. Checking the next room, they found another dead Imperial soldier who most likely got killed in the return fire from the platoon on the streets. Clear! He yelled before he went and yelled out from the window to the platoon on the streets. All clear! Moles turned to Slow, who was checking the body and the dead Imperial. Hey, Slow, good thing you remember your three steps. 
Captain Joseph walked into the great hall of the stronghold and grimaced, but some mortar and stone littered the carpentry of the hall and half-dried bloodstains laid here and there. He picked up an overturned chair and placed it properly next to a wooden table on the side. He looked at the litter of goblets and plates and gestured to his staff. Clear the tables and bring in the equipment. We set up shop here. Yes, sir. His staff quickly cleared up the hall and moved in all the equipment, turning the hall into a command center in just half an hour. What's the latest from HQ? Joseph asked his radio operator as he looked at the tactical map of the city that spread out on the table with markers of friendly units' positions. They say they have acknowledged our sitrep, the operator replied. Thunder Chief is sending the mariner in with ammunition supplies, ETA, five hours. Joseph nodded. Tell Griffin to check the warehouses. I want an inventory of what is in there. Yes, sir. The operator started to play out the dials on the radio and passed on the command. Next, I want all units to move any supplies, weapons, armor of the enemy to the courtyard outside. Joseph said next. Keep a tally of what we got. Continue to keep the city in lockdown, Joseph continued. Once we sort the sheep from the wolves, then we can move on to dealing with the governor and the merchants. By the time the sun reached the midday, all the defenders of Orwell's Point had either surrendered or been killed. The slaves were easily recognized by the colors that they wore and were kept under guard at the slave pens, while the marines double ensured that there was no hidden threats lurking behind. Weapons were confiscated, and several huge piles of swords and spears were dumped into the stronghold's courtyard. Teams of surrendered Imperial soldiers worked to clear the grisly remains of their former comrades. The bodies were dumped outside onto an open pit to be burnt. Joseph sat in a captured carriage and entered the pair of splendid-looking gates that led to an impressive-looking mansion. The lawn and the gardens looked expensively neat and tidy. Despite the early spring, the plants in the garden looked green and the flowers were blooming. How much did this governor spend to have enchanted his garden to withstand winter? Thought Joseph as he stepped out of the carriage. Falcon Company's lieutenant came up and saluted Joseph. Sir, they are kept inside the main building, the lieutenant reported as he and Joseph led towards the mansion doors. We have secured the whole mansion. All servants, maids and slaves are kept under watch on the servant's wing. The governor and the merchant family we kept in a separate and the other wing of the mansion, the lieutenant said. Joseph nodded and wondered how much money and slaves were used to build the mansion as he admired his surroundings. We found several storehouses at the back filled with tons of food and other supplies, not to mention also the governor's treasury which is quite impressive. The lieutenant continued to report. We also found a couple hidden tunnels, most likely for the family or the governor to escape. We've sealed off the tunnels to prevent their use. Walking through the double doors guarded by marines, the lieutenant brought Joseph to a day room where dozens of men enclosed in various sleepwear glared at him as he entered. What is the meaning of this? A portly male in long pajamas yelled. We are all respected men here. The marines guarding them snickered as they eyed the enraged half-dressed merchant. They quickly snapped to attention when they saw Joseph entering. Attention! At ease, Joseph waved the salutes away before turning to the group of men gathered before the fireplace. Do you know who you're offending by keeping us here? A portly merchant stormed up to Joseph. Release us at once or face them! <laughs> Joseph's revolver clicked and cocked the hammer back and jammed the muzzle of the sidearm into the babbling mouth of the merchant, whose expression turned white. One more word out of your stinking mouth, Joseph gave a cold smile, and I'll blow that mouth of yours away. Clear? Mm -hmm. 
The merchant tried to back off, cold sweat forming all over his face while nodding his head in a panic and pain. Good, if you understand. Better, if you don't. Joseph removed his revolver from the frightened merchant and picked up a cloth from the table and wiped the saliva off his gun. Now, you all listen carefully. No one is to talk till I give you permission. Joseph tossed the tablecloth back on the table. The city is now under the control of the United Nations, meaning all of your possession is now property of the UN. The group of the people turned to look at each other in confusion and shock. Joseph noticed one man seated in the chairs and sneer. You, Joseph gestured to the sitting man, you must be the governor, yes? The governor adjusted his sleeping gown and with some court dress and stood up. Yes, I am. So, what's so funny? Joseph sat down in one of the chairs and kicked the booted feet up on one of the Ottomans. The governor frowned slightly as he saw the dirty boots of the brutish shoulder on his furniture. He cleared his throat and smiled. You seriously don't know who you're offending? Of course I know, Joseph laughed. Aren't you all from the Empire Bluewood? If you know, then stop your foolishness. The governor jerked his head up proudly. Surrender before the emperor brings his wrath down on you. <laughs> Joseph laughed and looked at the lieutenant next to him while gesturing to the governor. You funny guy. I'll kid you last. End of chapter. Chapter 232. Slaves. Haven, Camp Alpha, Command Center, Operation Freedom, Day 5. Seven barges impounded, over 200 other various types of boats also held. Joseph's voice came through the speakers with some background static and a slight chops in the audio feed. Death toll as of now is over 2,000 Imperial troops and slaver guards. 2nd Battalion suffered 2 deaths and 22 injured, the 2nd Battalion commander reported. Also, there were over 300 collateral damage in civilians and slaves. 3,000 soldiers and guards captured and currently being imprisoned at the slave pens. Joseph continued, We have taken major merchant leaders and the governor as high-value targets and will be sending them back for intel to debrief on the mariners. In total, there are over 3,376 civilian residents remaining in the city, Joseph's image said. That's not counting the population of outlying farms and fishing villages. So far, the citizenry is following our orders without any issues. We seized over 5,000 slaves, with more than half were so badly abused that they could only blindly follow orders. Joseph's expression hardened in the video link, and a thousand of those slaves were just children. We found the slum about two kilometers away from the city that consisted of slaves too weak, ill, or crippled to work. Joseph's expression looked tired. Battalions of medics are warning all personnel to not approach the slums, as it is overflowing with disease and other viral infections. It is a dumping ground for unwanted slaves, Joseph said with a sigh. Teams in protective gear checked out the slums and found hundreds of bodies, most in various stages of decay, and some bodies are still thawing. Still, there were two hundred survivors, all sick and malnutrition and half dead. Joseph looked afraid. Do what you can for them, Blake replied. If they can be saved, do it, Joseph nodded. We can only do so much for them. Now... Material goods ranging from winter food supplies to over 800 tons, enough to feed the whole city for a couple weeks, Joseph continued. We expect shipments and supplies to start coming in now that spring is here. Over 27 tons of cold weapons and armor seized, and 200 war dragons taken from the stables and valuables we confiscated from the merchants and nobles there. They are still being tallied. The current value estimated at half a million gold crowns. Someone whistled in the background. 
Damn, that's a lot of money. We expect that figure to climb as seriously some of the stuff here. We don't even know how much the true value is, Joseph admitted. Just from the pay chest of the slavers, it's more than enough to equip a company of soldiers. An average layman in most kingdoms earns roughly one gold per year. The money plundered from Orwell's point is more than enough for Blake to buy a dozen warships from the Isles. We are using the prisoners to help rebuild the city and also buff the defensive works, Joseph grinned. We estimate another two days before the traders and travelers start coming to the city as the weather turns warmer. Good. Do what must be done. Blake nodded before turning to Major Frank, who shook his head, indicating that he had nothing to add. All right, we'll talk again later. Joseph's image saluted and the video link cut off shortly. So now, the easy part is completed. Here comes the hard part of holding the city. Sir, I think we should still ship a squadron of Cobras over via the Marines and crates, Air Force Commander Tommy suggested. The F-1 Cobras can be disassembled and reassembled easily. Having a fighter squadron would greatly help our troops there. Hmm, true, Blake nodded. Ensure that the planes have a defendable location for the runways before giving tactics a workable plan for that. There is no point having the planes there, but no runways get attacked and destroyed. Commander Tommy nodded. The Marines will be down for a major maintenance after this op is over. Frank and Ford both nodded. We really need to dedicate a cargo hauler. This relying on the Mariners isn't going to cut us for a long run. Blake agreed. Yeah, I agreed too. Still, we work with what we have now. Anyway, how's the defenses for the outpost now that the spring is here? Frank gestured to the map on the wall and said, Well, all the personal and mining outpost farms, logging camps, and other works have completed their basic military training over the winter. They are all equipped with surplus M1s, and our outposts are all fortified and holds enough supplies for them to hold up for two weeks, Frank said. We expect feral goblins to start their usual attacks and the raids within the week. All vehicles now are traveling in armed convoys, and no one is to solo drive at any highway now, Frank added. Even the new cargo trains have armed guards accompanying them. What happens if the goblins lay siege to any one of the outposts, Ford asks. The battalion is on rapid response duties, Frank replied. The guys under siege on the outpost will hunker down and wait for the third to come and relieve them. The Air Force is also fully on standby to provide close air support, Tommy added. We can keep the pressure on the outpost until the third comes and save the day. Frank winked and bumped fists with Tommy. First, Battalion will be holding the defenses for both Haven and Far Harbor. The Navy is also on standby for any sightings of Goblin Raiders, Ford said. Intel has been throwing up UAVs to scout planes up to recon Goblin City for any ship movements, but so far... They seem to be trying to recover from the previous bombings. Good. Everyone knows your assigned work and duties, Blake smiled. I can start relaxing and planning my honeymoon. Yeah, right, the guys laugh. You're still the boss. All right, jokes aside, Blake grinned. Great work all round. I want constant wreck flights all over the area to spot any goblin movement. Hit them as they mass up. Try to destroy them before they are near any of our facilities. Aye, aye, Captain. Dead Frontier. Teams of men carried several horned deers into the village in cheers while the gathered. They managed to survive winter, and now the wild game had reappeared due to the warmer weather. The people won't starve anymore. Ball smiled at the cheerful, gaunt faces of the people and saw hope in their faces. The wild game that they had caught would most likely be lean meat, as the animals had just come out of hibernation. 
He needed to start building and repairing the palisades now that winter is over and also have the troops patrol the surroundings. So much work to be done, thought Boss. Food for the people, trees to cut for lumber, and the village to defend from Orkin and goblin raiders, and the constant threat from the Empire looming overhead. Boss felt very tired suddenly. Orwell's point. Sergeant Mills jerked the black-hooded merchant up from his knees and roared at the flying boat engine's grim pitch. Bring them all! Let's go! The frightened merchant cried and squirmed as he restrained his mills and the other marines dragged him across the dock, his legs thumping over the gaps between the planks. They dumped the HVT to the Air Force who took over the slobbering merchant and secured him in a seat. Mills stood back and double-checked the headcount of the HVTs had been loaded on board the Mariner and signed off his charges over to the Air Force crew. All yours, he yelled over the roar of the engines. The crew chief gave a thumbs up and climbed into the plane, and Mills helped the crew close the hatch of the flying boat. The crew gave a wave to the marines and the dock before the pilot pushed the plane off the dock and headed towards the open stretch of water. The engines on the plane grew louder and the pilot pushed the engines to max and the craft roared its way to the wider river before it gently rose up into the air and it banked over slightly and disappeared into the sky. All right, no more babysitting, Mills grinned at his men. Now, get those prisoners to help move the supplies. I want them under cover before lunchtime. Joseph paced around the great hall of the stronghold and his staff manned radios and other command systems. Sir, Dragon One has spotted two river barges on approach from the northeast river. How long do they come into sight of the city? Joseph stopped and asked. Four to five hours, the operator replied. Joseph gestured to the operator to enlarge the image taken by Blue Thunder. Looks like a cargo runner. Most likely they are here to sell goods before picking up slaves and bringing them back, 2nd Battalion's tactical officer said. Looking at the logbooks of the governor and merchants here, seems like slaves are brought in from the surrounding areas to be traded back to the Empire or other places. Joseph nodded and grinned wickedly. Hmm, I wonder if we can trade off the prisoners for their goods. <laughs> His staff laughed. Well, sir, we have a chit-chat with the high command about that. Joseph kept smiling. Hmm, well, how's the counting of the treasures we confiscated? Sir, we're still going through all the stuff, one of the staff replied. It's just too much, and we're just short-handed. All right, there's no rush. Joseph waved off his staff's concern. We will load what is already being counted and weighed on the next flight back to Haven. Yes, sir. Any issues with the city's population? Joseph asked next. There are several fights breaking out with the slaves and locals, another staff reported. We have a couple stabbings, but not fatal. What happened? Joseph's eyebrows rose up. Seems like the slaves were abused and treated badly by some of the locals. Staff replied, the ex-slaves returned to the exact vengeance on the locals. We've arrested everyone who was involved, but these cases are on the rise. Joseph frowned. Issue out a statement to the slaves. Tell them to report whatever abuses or injustice they had suffered to us, and we will investigate. I do not want public order to be disrupted. Ensure that the slaves understand that. I will not hesitate to punish anyone harshly who breaks the law. Joseph said. As the moment the Marine came in and saluted, Captain, there's someone wishing to speak with you, sir. Who is it? Joseph asked. Sir, the person calls himself Matthew. He says he represents the slave, sir. The Marine stood to attention while giving his report. Where is he now? Joseph walked to the Marine. Sir, he's outside the stronghold gate, sir. Joseph turned to his staff and shrugged. 
Seems like we can save the trouble of issuing the statements into the slaves. Bring him into the parlor, Joseph said to the marine who saluted and went off to carry out his orders. Well, let's go see this Matthew guy and see what he wants. Joseph was enjoying a goblet of fine red taken from the governor's snores when he was a knock on the door. The battalion sergeant opened the door and a gaunt-looking male with filthy hair stood and the two marine escorts behind. Come in. The sergeant gestured the man in and took up a position at the doorway, watching the ex-slave like a hawk with his hand resting on his sidearm. Drink, Joseph offered the slave who looked at the place in the finery of the parlor with his dirty tattered clothing. The man shook his head and stood there with a proud bearing facing Joseph and spoke in a serious manner. I'd like to propose an alliance. End of chapter Chapter 233 Barbarians Uncharted Forest The soft, wet ground suddenly moved and the soil slowly got pushed out, forming a small burrow. A bald, greenish head appeared out as it took a deep breath of fresh spring air and giggled. Before long, several more burrows appeared like rabbits. Goblins started to crawl their way out of the soil. Outskirts of Haven, Agricultural District 2 The yellow-green hue of a plot of land and several farmers maintained a spell over the land. Burrows appeared in the soil as the farmers used magic to till the plot of land. A tractor hooked up to a high-capacity fertilizer spreader sat on the end of the plot, the driver waiting for the spell to end. Once the manor dissipated, the farmer moved the rumbling tractor forward and switched the fertilizer spreader on. The nozzles of the spreader sprayed a liquid compost which was most of the city's waste. The other farmers headed off to the next spot of land to cast the next spell to tilt the land with the tractor continue to spray nutrients and prepare the land for crops. Far Harbor Thank you for your hospitality here, Fleetmaster Megan said as she stepped onto the boarding ramp of her ship. We will bring your wishes of an alliance to the council to decide. With luck, we will return in time with good news. With that, she disappeared into the ship with Akron and gave a bow before boarding. Dijon stood on the pier, unsure of expression, before he rubbed his beard and said, Oh well, my apologies for offending you by courting you while you're engaged to another man. Shireen smiled. The fault does not lay completely with you. I never told you I was engaged, and that led to some misunderstandings. Well, best wishes. John gave a curt nod before he walked up to his own ship and boarded. I'll try my best to convince the council for an alliance, but from what I see, your man seems strong enough to protect you all. He gave a wave and disappeared into the ship while the crew started to prep the ship for departure. Tugboats pulled out the sailing ships out of the docks and towards the open sea, and before long the ships dropped their sails and with the wind filling them up, they started moving, slowly disappeared over the horizon. Phew, Shireen finally relaxed. That's one problem gone. Mining outpost. Cracks in the rifle shots broke out along the roofs of the mining facility as a small horde of goblins attempted to climb over a series of barbed wire and electrical fences that surrounded a locked-down outpost. The workers and miners had all trained as part of the local defense force of militia troops. The attack from the goblins came just after midnight when most of the workers were asleep. The hungry goblins, blinded by the powerful spotlights of the facilities, ran headlong into the rolls of razor-sharp concertina wire. The sharp blades slashed out and trapped goblins and their eggs, making the creatures yelp in pain and surprise. 
The outpost alarm rang out and the workers jolted awake before they grabbed their weapons and stored in the armory and took up positions on the rooftops the way that they were drilled and trained. Lights flooded the outpost surroundings, exposing the pale green skins of the goblins and cries of dismay and shock. The outpost commander barked an order and the men fired in aimed shots, shooting at those nearest the outpost. Some of the luckier goblins managed to avoid getting trapped in the concertina wire, hit the next line of defenses of electrical fencing. The voltage running through the fence was barely enough to stun a city goblin, but was enough to make the goblins jump in shock and pain. It slowed the goblin rush as they stood there, looking at confusion as the strange fence, not understanding why does it hurt and make them feel funny when they touch it. The defenders quickly made full use of the confusion to fire at the goblins, and not long the goblins fled in useless anger. These similar incidents occurred throughout the night at different outposts, as the goblins came out to rain for food only to be beaten back. The Air Force scrambled its fighters into the air, and they dropped bombs and rockets at any large gatherings of goblins that they found. UNS Singapore Captain's Quarters Blake rubbed his tired eyes as he gratefully accepted the mug of steaming hot tea from the steward and continued to listen to the reports streaming in from Air Force Command and Marine Command. Nine of our outposts were hit, but so far none breached, Commander Ford yawned as he stretched himself out over the chairs. We got a few injuries, mostly from falls, and someone accidentally shot himself in the leg. Third Battalion barely had to mobilize to support any outposts, Blake said. Frank is trying to push a major sweep through the forest to clear out the goblins. Well, the number of goblins in each raid is barely amounts to 200, Ford replied. Why not? Let Frank and his boys go hunting in the forest. The goblins seem to be overstretched and in disarray. Blake nodded and he hit the comms. Frank, go kick some rears. Aye, aye, Captain. Shouldn't you be on the matador? Blake asked at his end of the comms. Oh, there's plenty of time, Ford grinned. Intel estimates that the goblin invasion fleet needs at least half a week to get you. How many damn ships do those green craps have? Blake frowned as he dug through his computer records for an Intel report. While the last report said that they counted like four zero vessels of various sizes, Ford replied, I'll sail out in the afternoon and we'll expect to meet them within 28 hours. Compared to the previous fleet, I see our single booming effort has shown some results, Ford pointed out. That's like a third of the previous fleet. Blake nodded. Well, destroy them before they come close. I don't want a repeat of last year's battle cleanup. Damn things can burrow into the sand and beaches. Yeah, that was a huge waste of time and resources just to clear them off the beach, Ford agreed. All right, I'm going to get some breakfast before I return to Far Harbor. Want some? Nah, you go ahead. I still got some reports to go through, Blake declined. But help me get a steward to send me some tea and sandwiches up, yeah? Ford nodded, uncooling tea on Blake's desk and sighed. Damn, how I wish we had some local coffee here. Can't bear to finish the last few packs. Well, that's not the worst I can think of, Blake smiled. Wait till you tell the princess that the stocks of chocolates are running out. Orwell's Point the jolt of the creaking wheel of the wagon as it went over the hump of the road incited groans and moans from the people held inside the cage. Several burly men, armored in a mixture of leather and steel, rode war dragons next to the convoy of wagons. Inside one of the more lavishly decorated cabbages amongst the convoy, laid a half-naked, mustached, bald male with a large belly and several fluffy pillows. 
On his side were three young women scantily dressed and giving him a massage with shoulders and legs. The convoy slowly came into Orwell Point and they crossed six meter long drawbridge just behind another similar convoy. The head guard rapped against the wooden window covers and Master said, My lord, we have reached the city gates. Good, good. Coombe leaned forward from his position and pushed the window panels open and glanced at the city. The city guard came up and asked, Purpose? Purpose? Coombe frowned in annoyance. To trade, of course. We need to check your cargo. The guard seemed unperturbed and instead said, You? Coombe gestured to his head guard outside. Deal with it. Yes, my lord. His guard bowed and hastened off to settle with the city guards. Ch, no lives. Coom leaned back on the pillows while the girls fawned all over him. Not long, the carriage moved again, and his head guard rode his mount next to the window and said, My lord, the guard seemed uh, strange. What is it? Coom said. What is strange? They, um, rejected my offer of coin, he said. Uh, the guards rejected money? Coom was intrigued by the news. How strange indeed. Also, my lord, his guard seemed nervous as he gripped his sword hilt tightly. The city, uh, feels too quiet. Hmm? Coom pushed away the girls and leaned out the window to see for himself. And true enough, the sense that the energy in the city was different and there was also no people on the streets, only them and the convoy before them. Send someone to find out what's going on. Coom quickly ordered as he pitched forward just as the carriage stopped abruptly. What's going on? He yelled angrily as the girls helped him up. The merchants up ahead suddenly stopped. The guard quickly informed his master. I'll go and find out why. But before the guard could move his mount forward, a sudden voice loud and clear enough for everyone to hear spoke. Everyone, please step out from your wagons and carriages. Riders are to dismount from their dragons and weapons are to be laid on the floor now. The merchants and their guards were all in an uproar when had these demands to the unknown speaker. The guards drew their weapons and formed up a protective circle around their charges, while the wagon drivers knocked and loaded their crossbows and looked around nervously. What is this? Coombe peeked out from the carriage window in surprise. How has the Empire gone crazy? Are they robbing us in broad daylight? You have till the count of five to comply, or we will take action. The voice thundered again. Stay inside, my lord. The head guard sat on his mount and covered the carriage, his helmet head jerking left and right as he tried to find the enemies. Four, three, two, one. Bam, bam, bam. Several thunderous roars made Coombe jump, and the girls screamed in fright. His eyes widened in horror as he saw the head guard's head jerk, and the mangled helmet flew off with bits of red and grayish matter. Drop your weapons, get off the wagons and carriages. I will not repeat myself. Break out! Someone yelled as the chops and hooves sounded from some fiving guards attempting to ride out to the streets, only to find the streets were now covered up, and even the way out to the city was barred. Bam! 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 Another series of thunderous roars, and Coombe heard clangs of armor and weapons hitting the ground. We surrender! came frightened screams and cries after the loud roars. Don't kill us! Drop your weapons, get off your wagons and carriages now! Coombe, with shaking hands, opened the carriage doors and kicked the girls out before him. The frightened woman kneeled, with their heads down with the tears streaming down their faces, and seemed fine 
before a nervous stepped out. As he stepped out, a pair of rough hands suddenly grabbed him and slammed him down into the rock pavement, making him bite his lips. Get down, you fat ass! Someone screamed in his ear as he felt hands groping his body and wondered if he was going to be assaulted. He turned his face and saw dozens of boot feet move around. The men belonging to those boots wore a strange, confusing pattern of blue-green and grey-coloured uniform, and they were stripped, the guards and the other merchants, of their weapons as the other personal belongings. Who are these barbarians? End of chapter. Chapter 234. Custom Seizure. Kung moaned as his hands were forcibly wrenched behind his back and something tied his two thumbs together painfully. Next, he felt hands jerking him up to his feet and he started as he saw an orkin holding on to him on one side and another a person on the other. The two strangely dressed barbarians sat him down next to several others. He recognized some of his guards and drivers amongst the group, all with various expressions of confusion and fear. The barbarians yelled and barked in a strange tongue, but he could recognize some common words were mixed in with his speech. And the strange thing, other than their clothes, was that all these men and the organ had their hair cut till very short. Their hair was barely visible under the pot-shaped helmets that they wore. The barbarians yelled at them to get to their feet in common, and they led them deeper into the city. Coom realized why the merchant's convoy before him had stopped when he saw the head of the convoy was large barrier that blocked the road. He noted that the side streets were all walled off and there was even more of those barbarians on the roofs of the street. After crossing the barrier, Coom found himself and the others at the main square of the city. He saw locals watching the ongoings behind their windows while so many others lingering at the edge of the square. A small platform for public proclamation sat at the end of the square, where several figures in a strange colored clothing stood. Coombe noted that there was almost a hundred of these men and the other merchants' people gathered here. A small commotion broke out at the rear, and Coombe saw the slaves that he'd brought to sell here and being led in. The slaves looked around their surroundings with the unease and fear as the barbarians led them to the next to Coombe's group. All right, everyone's here. A booming voice came in from the platform, and a figure wearing a strange hat stood in front. Now, for the confused people here, this city, all this point, is under new control of the United Nations. All laws and rules imposed by the Empire at Bluewood are now hereby voided, and only laws tainted by the United Nations will be in effect immediately. The person said and stared at Coombe's group, Slavery is banned in the UN. Anyone found in possession, import, export, or trafficking of slaves will be subjected to a hefty fine, and also imprisonment. Repeat offenders will be canned and jailed, or subjected to hard labor. Coombe and the other merchants' drawers dropped when they heard this news. All else point had fallen to these barbarians. How is this possible? The crowd watched the ongoings and remained silent, as if they were used to such scenes while the merchants under arrest started to voice their disagreement and displeasure. BAM! A sudden crack of thunder shocked the merchants into silence as they flinched from the roar. I will not repeat myself again. You all have witnessed what happens if I have to repeat myself again. The man held a strange smoking hand bow in his hands. Now... Your all properties will be seized and impounded by customs, the man said, while those who are to be sold as slaves will be released. That is all. The man finished his speech and stepped off the platform. Coombe was stunned as were the other merchants. 
All of our properties will be seized. Where was the justice in this law? Justice! Ah, shut the fuck up. Why do the barbarians roll these eyes at the merchants out raw? Come on, Rupert. Joseph stood at one of the balconies in the stronghold and watched the wagons and carriages as they had ceased being brought into the courtyard and parked together with dozens of other wagons that they had collected over the week. Soon, a team of local trusted bookkeepers and laborers swarmed over the goods and wagons. Each item and detail noted down, and the laborers would move them over to the warehouses for storage. At this rate, all the warehouses will be full to the brim, his second lieutenant, Lieutenant Rathia, said. We can't even move all the materials back with the planes working overtime. Joseph grinned as he looked away from the view and said to his old friend, Well, most of the stuff here we can just resell it to the locals or use it ourselves. It's only the minerals and the ores that needs to be shipped back to Haven. And most of the goods they brought in trade are mostly just junk weapons and armor, which we can just get the local blacksmith to melt down into ingots. Joseph continued, the other slaves and food. Good thing that most of the merchants here carry a lot of gold to trade with slaves, Rathia said. Now I know why everyone is dealing in slaves. Joseph nodded. So how goes the pacification of the region? Well, we hid in nearby farms and fishing villages, Rathia said. They aren't so happy with us taking away the slaves that had worked over them. Some of the slaves even rejected to be freed. Rathia shook his head. We left them there. But we did issue a warning to the people that owning slaves are illegal now and will be subjected to strict punishments if found. But the worst is the copper mines we found, Rathia sighed. We liberated the mines, but most of the slaves are so badly abused and worked, their mines are gone except for the newer slaves. We moved the badly affected slaves to a holding area outside the city with 24-7 medical care and support, Rathia said. But I doubt that we can save any of them. They've been scarred too deeply. Tell the medics to do the best for them, Joseph sighed. Also, inform High Command. See if they can send us more doctors and nurses for support. Got it, Rathia said. Great Ocean Plains, Tuck and Brute scratched the itching scab on his head and looked back at the crude wagons being pulled by a pair of scrawny wind wolves. The drivers on the wagons flipped their barb-tipped whips at the wolves, inciting a tired growl from them as they moved faster. Come on, Tok roared out. I want to be in the city before night. Tok gave a wide, toothy grin as he looked at the crates of merchandise he was planning to sell at Orwell's Point in exchange for good slaves. He was very sure that those soft skins had never seen such product before. Recently, all the tribes seemed to be crazily raiding the settlements and villages in ocean plains and causing all the soft skins to run away. Now, all the villages were abandoned, and Tok could only think of coming to trade the items that he was to the Empire's softskins, so that he could get more slaves. Even the softskin slavers were also grumbling about the shortage of slaves. Tok shook his head as he thought of all the competition amongst the tribes to get more slaves. Well, Tok's smart. Tok goes to city to get slaves. <laughs> After several hours on the road, Tok and his men finally caught a glimpse of the city in the distance. He wondered why the softskins liked to live in such smutty and cramped places. It further reinforced Tok's impression that the softskins are weak and cowards to hide behind walls. Faster, Tok ordered. Faster, we saw the faster we get meat. Beat. What is the meaning of this? Tok roared as he faced the several strangely dressed soldiers. We do not take stock stuff. Drop your weapon now. 
The soldier pointed his pointy sticks at Tok and his men, which suspiciously looked like the boomsticks from Sin City. Boss! The men looked eager to charge forward at the softskins. They fingered the revolver cannons and they started down at the group of soldiers cowering behind those barriers. Tok roared and quickly drew his weapon. Kill the treacherous scum and escape! Tok laughed as he squeezed the trigger of his cannon and enjoying the kick on the recoil and rotten egg smell. The thick, dirty gun smoke blocked his view from making him unable to see the shot landed. Thunderous roars answered him back as he dove to the side, and he heard the yelp and pain of the wind wolves as he rolled under it. His men laughed madly as they fired their guns and stood their ground. The strange soldiers cursed as the barricades around them exploded from the larger caliber rounds. Tok emptied both his revolvers and the barriers which the soldiers were behind were broke open and the revolvers started to reload. As he finished reloading, he looked up and saw his men fall. A rapid thunder roared out, and he saw the dark red blood of his kinsmen blossoming. No! Tok cried out in rage as he charged up, both his guns roaring as he fired at the enemy. Die, you sopskins! Die! Captain, Joseph Staff called out urgently from the Great Hall. Gunfight at the main gates. What happened? Joseph quickly walked up to the command post. His staff quickly showed his video of the short skirmish that had happened at the main gate. They had installed dozens and dozens of closed-circuit cameras all over the city. Joseph frowned as he saw the video and the caravan orc started shooting the troops at the gate. And those guns? Where the hell did they get guns? Sergeant Mills kicked away the guns from the birdie body of the orc laying face down on the ground. He was on rapid response duties when the call came in with orcs with guns. Luckily, none of the marines at the gate were badly injured. Most cut from the shrapnel, but were otherwise fine. They managed to suppress the cut down the rampaging orcs with the MGs covering the gate and Mills teamed in support. The orcs went down fast. Fifteen bodies, Sarge. His men called out as he ensured the orcs were thoroughly dead. No survivors. Damn. Mills cursed under his breath. We taught these guys too well. Check their bodies and wagons. See if we can find any clue or something about how the orcs have gotten guns, Mills ordered, and get someone who knows how to handle the wolves and calm them the frick down. The wound wolves were huddled together in one side as well hissing and baring their teeth aggressively at the marines who eyed them warily. Mills bent down and picked up the large frame revolver, feeling the hefty weight and the weight of his hand. Um, this looks almost like a copy of our single-action revolvers. He broke the action of the revolver and opened up and ejected the shells inside, letting them drop into his palm. He whistled as he looked at one of the unfired rounds. Damn, it's like 20 millimeters or something. The weapon looked simple and crude with a solid frame, top-brake cartridge-firing revolver and a J-handle grip made out of polished wood. Mull sniffed the chamber and grimaced at the rotten egg smell of saltpeter. Frick! Something is freaking wrong with this, Mills frowned. Hey, I need a runner. Get this to command now. Sarge! One of the men yelled from the top of the wagon he was expecting. I think you want to see this. What now? Mills had a bad, ominous feeling as he climbed up the wagon. Ah, frick. A couple of crates had their lids peeled up by the men and saw the shapes of revolvers covered in sawdust. He did a quick count of the numbers of crates in the wagons and cursed. Where the frick did they get so many guns? End of chapter. Chapter 235 Extreme Prejudice 
Captain Joseph played with the Orc revolver, while the rest of his officers and NCOs gathered in the Great Hall, turned command center. He dry-fired the heavy revolver, requiring him to use both hands to stabilize and squeeze the heavy trigger. Damn, this thing is hard to fire, Joseph said to Danny's men as he dropped the weapon on the table. Now, anyone has any ideas as to how and where did these come from? The room of officers and NCOs looked at each other and shrugged. Joseph sighed before asking, Any prisoners? Anyone to interrogate? No, sir, the officers in charge of the gate replied. They were orcs and the men all responded with deadly force when they retaliated. So the dudes were bringing these in to sell or trade were all dead and we have no single clue who, where or how all of these came from. Um, yes, sir. Joseph rubbed his face tidily. Get our orcs to check out the dead of four belongings and see if they can get a clue as to which tribe or clan they came from. Then see if we can backtrack from there. Yes, sir. UNS Singapore, Captain's Quarters. Recovered 90 orc revolvers and over a thousand rounds of ammunition for them. Joseph's image said to the room. Any leads on where they came from? Blake asked as he fiddled with his thumbs. Only clue we got is that they came from a planeswalker clan. Joseph said, as to where they currently are, we have no idea as they are nomadic. Blake nodded. Got it. Send some of the weapons back before ordnance to take a look at and destroy the rest. Yes, sir, Joseph said. Sir, if it is possible, can we get some UAV support here? It will help greatly to map out the area out and also spot threats before they come closer. Blake glanced at Tommy, who nodded in answer. We can strip down the ally and ship it over part by part, and send down the tank crew to reassemble and work maintenance on it. Okay, do it, Blake ordered. Priority now is to try and track where these weapons came from, and who is making them. Frank, send the 101st, Blake said. Get to the bottom of this. This is a major threat should our enemies possess firearms. Frank nodded. I will get the team ready for the next bite down. Good, okay, do what you all are supposed to do. Blake ended the meeting. Captain, Ford's image on the display frowned as he stared at the picture of the orc revolver. Could this be made by them? Them? Blake's eyes narrowed as he thought of the possibility. The deserters? Ford nodded as he explained his theory further. The Indian Marine, after all, is a weapons designer, and our single-action revolver designs are made by him after all. It would not be hard for him to come out of the with another design. Hmm... So you're saying that there's a high chance they will have allied with orcs? Blake turned to look at the map of the area. They went east instead of up north. Is that why we couldn't find them at all this time? Ward nodded again. Seems so. The terrain has changed since that time and the map was made over a hundred years ago. Already teams of surveyors are reporting that the certain terrain features are not as large nor as the map as accurate. If they are somewhere to the east, Blake's finger landed on a terrain feature on the map. The Great Orc Plains. Yes, that's what the intel we got from the Orc prisoners where they were and their tribes and clans lived at, Fawkes said. Blake tapped on the area where the supposed Great Ocean Plains were supposed to be. Hmm, Dawn's map shows us the area as a forest. Yes, but according to the Orcs, it's actually a vast plain. Ford's image confirmed. Tell Lieutenant Tavar to find me at my office now. Blake at the intercom and spoke to the operator. I want his intel department to work on this. Goblin C, UNS, Matador, Command Bridge. Ford entered the comms and cursed under his breath before turning his attention to the tactical plot. Blimps on the surface contact were showing a radar of his tiny fleet prepared to face off a goblin fleet. 
All right, orders for the CAG. Go for launch. Ward ordered the carrier air group commander to a single squadron of Sea Cobras. First Lieutenant Legos, CAG of the Sea Cobra squadron on board the Matador, grinned as he replaced the phone back on his mount and yelled at the gathered pilots inside the ready room. Mount up! The pilots quickly grabbed their gear and ran to the individual biplanes. The techs had already warmed up the engines and hooked the biplanes to the towing tractors. One by one, the biplanes were loaded onto the side elevator and brought to the top deck. The crew quickly hooked up the undercarriage and the biplanes to stream catapults. There were only two catapults on the deck and the rest of the squadron waited patiently for their turn. The launch lights turned green and the master hit the launch key and the steam catapult propelled the hooked-up biplane out into the air with a massive force. Once both catapults were fired, the locking carriages were wind back and positions, and the next set of Cobras were locked into place. Within twenty minutes, all eight of the Sea Cobras were safely launched into the air, and they flew off in formation towards the direction of the Goblin fleet. An hour later, the comms lit up in the calls of the enemy contact. Lagos peered out of the side of the biplane's lower wing and saw the telltale white lines of the sea's surface, which indicated the wakes of the ships. Flying fish lead to all fishes, Lagos called out. Surface contacts, two o'clock low. Roger. Flying fish to Matador, contact sighted. Engaging. The eight biplane squadrons let into pairs and dived in towards the unaware goblins. The pilots armed with their rockets and gun pods and let loose once they were in range. Camp Alpha, standard obstacle course. Come on! Hitsu yelled as the new teammates as they climbed over the low wall in full combat gear. Bloody FNG! The new teammate put back a curse as he rolled and sand and jumped off the top of the wall, allowing the roll to disperse away from the weight of his equipment and damaging his knees. Lance Corporal Wolf Tanner was managing to pass all the strict tests and criteria before he was assigned to take one of the open slots on the 101st's ATI. Claymore won. Now he just needed to get his new teammates' recognition. What's FNG? Loke asked Tavil, who watched the Hitsu leading the replacement while Doth down the obstacle course. Farking new guy! Travel replied absentmindedly as he looked at the stopwatch in his hand. Well, not bad timing for someone who's not using magic to boost his stats. <sighs> Hitsu dumped his backpack weighing 30 kilos down before removing his vest and weapons. Hey FNG, run faster! Wolf grunted as he ran and finished the last 400 meters, several seconds behind Hitsu. He dumped his gear down and started drinking some water from his canteen. Not bad, Hitsu at 4 minutes and 12 seconds, Tavall said. Wolf at 4 minutes 18 seconds. Damn, had it slower than before. Hitsu gathered up his gear and looked at the chart Tavall was holding. All right, boys, gather up for a briefing in room 4 in 15 minutes. Tyria suddenly appeared and called out. We got a new job. Finally. Hitsu laughed and quickly jogged off to drop off his gear and wolf in tow. Less than 15 minutes, the whole Claymore 1 team had gathered at the briefing room. All of them except Tyria and Wolf moaned dramatically when they saw Lieutenant Tabor entered with a thick folder in his arms. Oh, quiet. Tyria gave a frown as he eyed the intel officer. The last time they worked with Tabor, one of their own died. Tabor gave a small smile as the expression of the men had said, I'm sorry for your loss on the previous mission, but now we have a new job for you. He plugged in a data stick into the display console and an image appeared on the screen. Okay, crap has gotten real now. As of 17 hours ago, the 2nd Battalion Marines encountered an orc merchant convoy at Orwell's Point. 
Tevar started the briefing. The orcs, instead of surrounding and attacking the marines, were killed. He flipped the display, showing the aftermath of the skirmish. Now, the marines, on checking the cargo on the wagons, found these. The image showed dozens and dozens of large revolvers lined up neatly on a table, with rows and rows of ammunition laid out on the side. Ninety orc revolvers and over a thousand rounds from the weapons. What the... The team was shocked as they saw the images. Even Tyria could not maintain his calmness. I thought the humans were the only ones who knew how to make these. Apparently not, Tevar said. This is where you guys come in. Tyria frowned as he said this. So you want us to find out where these weapons come from? Tyria nodded. Find who and where they are making these arms. Once you have positively identified the factories or workplaces, you are clear to call in an airstrike. Your objective is to destroy these weapons and any known methods of production. Oh, crap. The team groaned as they heard what Tevar needed them to do. I knew it. He always brings us bad news or some crazy ops. Quiet, Tyria growled at his team. How are we going to find them? So far, the only clue we have is that these orcs come from the Planeswalker clan. Tevar said as he looked at his watch. You will take the first flight over to Orwell's Point and then leave in, uh, five hours. Once there, 2nd Battalion will provide you with all the support you need, Tevar said. But take note, their support is limited, but you will have the priority tasking of the UAV that is going to be stationed there. So where do you go find these Planeswalkers clan, Altiot asked, and what kind of support exactly? At this point of time, we are still determining their locations as the orcs are nomadic creatures. Tevar answered, Your area of search will be within the Great Ocean Plains. Better familiarize yourself with the intel we know of the area. Tevar started to hand out documents to the team, who started to flip through the intelligence documents. As for local support, you will have the 2nd Battalion Marines, a company of 120mm mortar support, a squadron of cobras and two heavy dragons. Tevar said as the team read through the documents, But expect the marines to not get to your location quickly. The marines will also assign some orc to help you liaison with the outer plains. What? The whole plains is estimated to be over 1,300 kilometers square. The team grumbled. How are we going to move around that area? On transport, you'll have new toys. Tavar smiled. They will be shipped over together with you, and you will be start training on their usage once you arrive at Orwell's Point. What's this? Loke asked as he looked at past the last documents, which was a manual for some kind of vehicle which he found a slightly familiar. Are we going to be lab rats? Hitsu asked as he looked at the manual. Motorcycle operator manual. Last of all is the highly classified. Tevar suddenly gave a serious look. We suspect that these weapons were made by the city's same deserters and murderers who ran away. If they are found to be the ones making these weapons and selling it, find them and terminate it. With extreme prejudice. End of chapter. Chapter 236. Welcome to the Sandbox. Haven Research and Development Lab. What's that smell? Senior specimen Taijun Pak asked as he kicked back his chair. Koichi? Taijun quickly saved his work on his computer before he stood up and went to find the source of the smell in the lab. What is that? He saw Koichi and the other IT guys clustered around a table in the pantry. What are you guys up to? Oh, DJ! Koichi smiled excitedly as his thick glasses fogging up from the steam coming from the portable grill in front of him. Come, come. What are you all doing? Tai Jun joined them and did a double take at the grill. It's Takayaki. Hi, 
Koichi expertly flipped the half-cooked balls of dough with a pick. I managed to get some taiko directly from the guys at the biohazard and containment lab. Why will the octopus be biohazard? Taijun gave a confused expression. <laughs> it's from the kaiju, Koichi grinned. B and C labs just finished testing and it's cleared for fit for human consumption. But I thought the monster smells. Taijun picked up a bowl and rolled the chunks of purple meat and the table and sniffed it. Hmm? The smell comes from the slime it secretes out. Koichi continued flipping the takiyaki balls in the grill. Anyway, I got some of the meat from B and C and borrowed a grill from Chief Kaito and see if it tastes good. Koichi expertly flipped the takiyaki out onto the plate and squirt of some mayonnaise over them. Too bad we don't have any economic sauce and bento flakes. Come, let's eat while it's still hot. Koichi offered the plate to the rest of the IT department gang, who hesitated. I'll try it first then. He poked one of the takiyaki and bit into it. Mmm, hearty desu. Really? The rest looked at each other and gathered their courage as they each took one and ate it. Oh, not bad. Let's try grinning it with salt, Koichi suggested next as he dropped the chunks of kragar into the round cups of takiyaki grill and sprinkled some salt on. Soon, the whole team was busy themselves grilling and cooking the kragar in the pantry, enjoying the octopus-like taste of the monster. Orwell's Point Riverport The roar of the FB-1 Mariner slowly died down as the frying boat glided into a gentle bump against the wooden dock. The side hatch swung out and the aircrew tossed ropes to the waiting workers at the port, securing the flying boat to the pier. Members of Claymore 1 climbed out of the hatch and stretched themselves after a five-hour-plus journey and the cramped seating. Hello, guys! Moles waved at them while seated at one of the pilings and chewing away on some jerky. Enjoyed the flight! Teria smiled and shook hands with Moles. It was okay, just too noisy for a good nap. Ha! Moles grinned back. Let's get your gear offloaded and have you meet with the CO's session. Well, looky here. Merle's winked at the two marines that came out the plane. I see you guys here to join the fun too. Put a sock in it, Drake mumbled as he gently set his wagon case down on the dock. Can't have you take all the glory. Merle's laughed and he high-fived Kant who said the serious tone. Well, they needed the pros, so we're here. The men of Claymore 1 laughed at Merle's expression as he shrugged to his defeat. Am I give up. He turned to the group of half-naked men who sat on the heels in the side watching the byplay curiously and said in common, All right, I'll offload the cargo from the plane and bring it back to the stronghold. The half-naked workers nodded and then went down to the plane where the air crew started to offload the cargo out in the waiting hands. You guys using slave labor? Drake's eyebrows rose up as he hefted his weapon case over his back. Nah, Merle shook his head. They kind of formed some union or faction and they said that they are willing to work for us if we pay them fairly. So the CO used the money we liberated from the nobles here and paid them their fair dues. Moles clarified. We aren't ill-treating them at all. I see, Drake nodded. Well, I guess it's good for them to have paid work now. Well, plenty of farms, merchants and locals aren't too happy about it, Moles replied as he led them off the dock area. We had to put down a few protests and some turned quite ugly. The ex-slaves also are not having a good time either. Mills continued to give them the brief of the city happenings. Some of the locals have been downright nasty with them, treating them like they're still animals. Of course, they only dare to do that when we can't see it and it's hard to track down the perpetrators of our hate crimes. In return, some of the ex-slaves have formed gangs are now retaliating back to the locals. Mills sighed. 
Now both sides are having a cold war, while we're in the middle trying to ensure that the whole city doesn't explode. Why not impose martial law on the city? Drake asked while the rest listened on. It would limit the movement of both parties and reduce the amount of conflict. We're sort of having a curfew going on now, Mills replied. No one is to be in the streets after the tenth bell. Anyone caught gets thrown into the city dungeons, no excuses accepted. But still, the city needs labor provided by the ex-slaves to function. Merles led them on a wagon where a couple of raptor-like dragons were hitched to. The ex-slaves carried the offloaded cargo and piled them onto the back of the wagon. The locals couldn't provide enough manpower to run the city, and we do not have enough troops to totally knock down the city. Hence, the CEO decided not to put the city under martial law. The cargo from the plane took up three wagonfuls of space, and the men hitched up to the side and tops of the crates as the driver snapped the reins, sending the wagons jolting off uncomfortably over the uneven paved roads. It took almost fifteen minutes to reach the stronghold, where his 2nd Battalion set up shop. The newly arrived marines and special forces took their surroundings, feeding the tense atmosphere of the locals and ex-slaves in the city. They saw a couple fights breaking out between the young locals and the ex-slaves over some unknown issues. Whistles blew as marines equipped their riot gear and charged through the crowd, wielding shields and batons. They waddled into the fight and lashed out with their shields and batons forcefully breaking up the fight. Nam, this city feels like it's sitting on a powder keg. It's a whispered to Loke. I wonder what will happen with the whole city suddenly revolts. Loke shook his head. That's not our problem. We have enough on our plate already. Loke is right, Tyrius said from the top of the crate. We just focus on our mission. Second Battalion will handle the problems of the city. The wagons creaked to a stop after passing the sentry posts and lined up together with the team of 2nd Battalion Marines and work fatigues, gathering on offloading the cargo. Well, we're here. We'll just call this place The Stronghold. The CO is upstairs in the Great Hall, waiting for you. The men followed Mills into the keep and climbed up the grand staircase before entering the high ceiling hall where computers and displays were set up all over the Great Hall. Electronic beeps and professional voices of the operators working over the stations could be heard with the echoing ambience. Everyone stood to attention while Mills reported in. Sir, 101st and support party of two reporting for duty, sir. At ease, Captain Joseph gestured to the men to come closer as he looked up a stack of reports and tactical tablet. Come here and take a look. The men gathered around the table while Joseph said, High Commander sent you here to find out where and how the orcs have gotten hold of guns. Now, they told me to give you guys a bit of every support that I have, which frankly, is pretty restricted right now. Joseph looked at everyone and briefed them. I only have three combat companies and one support company stationed here. The locals and ex-slaves outnumber us each by twenty to one. We, of course, have the advantage in firearms, and we also confiscated every weapon we could find, but I'm sure we missed plenty, Joseph said, and I'm not sure if you heard, the city is having a standoff between two factions, the local merchants and the farmers against the ex-slaves. And we are stuck in the middle of them, trying to keep the peace and at the same time fend off the Empire troops that decided to come knocking on our door. Joseph straightened up. I can only give you limited manpower support. You will have full material and artillery support, which includes a single squadron of Cobras that we have here. UAV will also be on your call, if need be. Tyrion nodded. Thank you, sir. But I think most important thing now is the intel that you have on the guns. 
I'm sure that you all read the preliminary reports on the orc revolvers, Joseph said. Well, just as a recap, the weapon is clearly made for orc hands. It chambers a 20mm and the recoil can break a person's wrist easily, Joseph said. The cylinder holds five rounds and is built like a cannon barrel. This allows a large caliber shell to fire without breaking the cylinder, Joseph explained. Now, manufacturing something like this is possible with our knowledge of iron casting, but orcs are not known for the processing such high-level metallurgy skills. In fact, we found that all the orc revolvers appear to be cast from the same mold, meaning someone is mass-producing these weapons, or someone taught the orcs how to do it. Joseph frowned. This is not good for our campaign here. Should the Empire acquire the knowledge of firearm making, we'll lose our advantage despite our weapons being higher quality and efficiency. We identified three locations within the Great Ocean Plains where the Planeswalker clan might be located. Joseph pointed to the map on the table. We interviewed several merchants coming in from the Ocean Plains and there is the best we get. Tyria looked at the three dots on the map and said, There are at least several days walk between each other. Have you sent the UAVs or recon flights over? Joseph shook his head. The UAV just arrived one flight before you. The techs just assembled it and are running checks as we speak on. I expect another hour before the certify the UAV good to fly. You got new vehicle to play with, right? Joseph asked. I was told that you need to familiarize yourself before starting to search. Yes, sir, Terrio replied. We'll be working on the ground crew to assemble them and learn how to use the motorcycles. Wow, cool. Mills couldn't help exclaiming surprise. You guys get bikes. Bikes? Everyone looked at Mills in confusion. <laughs> we call motorcycles as motorbikes, or bikes for short, Mills grinned. I own one myself. Well, that settles it, Joseph pointed to Mills. Help them learn how to use bikes. Yes, sir, Mills grinned. Welcome to the Sandbox Boys. End of chapter. Chapter 237. Intranet Trolls. Haven, United Nations Testing Grounds. Fark! Corporal Clove cursed as he hammered his glove fist against the controls. This piece of crap! He tried fruitlessly to wrestle control back. Despite the gyro balancer installed inside the manned armored walker, the dancing spider tank made Clove sick as he wanted to puke at the jerking motions. The unit's number two commander cursed from his seat as Clove's shoulder and he gripped the hand bars preventing the tossing lid of chair. The MAW-02 Bushmaster was currently doing a violent tap dance with six legs, its heavy, padded feet churning the earth around it as it danced madly on the spot. Shut it down, the text yelled as the clove, as they watched helplessly as the mech going haywire. Shut it down. Units 02 Commander, 3rd Sergeant Sath, reached to the side and pulled the red emergency shutdown bar and the MAW suddenly collapsed downwards as the power was cut from its magical circuits into the system. Fuck this crap! The test crew slowly crawled out of the shaking legs, helped by the techs who checked them for injuries before hooking cables into the MAW and prepared the MAW for transport back into the mech bay. Damn thing just acted up all of a sudden. Clove rubbed the bruise he had on the side of his head as he complained. If it wasn't for the helmet he wore, he would be suffering more than a mild concussion now. I was putting it on an obstacle course, and his control suddenly went crazy. Senior spacemen Tai Jun Pak and spaceman Hideo Koichi both sighed at the same time as they carried their equipment over to the downed mech, which had been recovered and was now sitting docilely inside the mech bay. 
They flipped open the access hatch and climbed into the cockpit before hooking up their laptops to the Bushmaster system. Running diagnostic systems, Noichi said as he rapidly tapped on the keyboard, retrieving logs from the system database. Taijun, the computer station, was unscrewing the black box from under the seat before he hooked it up to his system, the black box, and copied all the system files over to his laptop. After a while, they both exited the Bushmaster and climbed down the ladder, while the anxious crew approached them all with questions. All right, we can't tell you guys anything now till we've run full system diagnostics and we check the logs for any bugs in the system. The crew looked disappointed while Sergeant Sath asked, So, when will it be fixed? We don't know yet. The two IT specialists shrugged. Might be a day or a week. We need to check all the lines of code and see if there are any conflicts in the programming that we missed. Um, Sath cursed. Now I've got to go write a report on why the Zero Two is down for repairs. Yeah, you go do that, Taijun sighed. We'll go find out what went wrong, and I think I know what the problem is. Haven, Research and Development Lab, Basement Number 3, The Cave. Taijun swiped his access card before thumbing the scanner, and the armored door slid open. Weechi followed behind him, carrying several stacks of boxes as they entered the darkened room. Hi, Mike, Taijun called out before reaching out to switch the flicking the room's lights on. Instantly, the room lit up brightly in a harsh white light. Magic Mike! <sighs> Three trolls in various poses appeared and the lights roared in anger. My eyes! Gods, Taijun sighed as he flipped off the lights, leaving only one set. The trolls quickly calmed down and crowded over, sniffing the boxes Koichi was holding. Magic Mike! The trolls parted and Taijun saw a huge troll, easily the largest in the room laying on several mattresses and cushions with several monitors surrounding him. Taijun and Koichi ignored the rest of the trolls and they walked up next to the sprawled troll and found him naked, his huge genitals hanging out and they could hear moans and cries in the background. What the frick? Taijun frowned as he turned the monitors over and saw porn was being played on the monitors. Why are you watching porn? The troll called Magic Mike gave a shrug as he picked up a small barrel of root beer and took a swill. What puny humans man made with Magic Mike? Taijun dropped several data sticks on the table and said, These codes, I want you and your gang to run debugs on them, check them for issues and conflicting lines of code. Sure, what you give. Magic Mike scratched his tummy while eyeing Taijun. His dull, grey skin and several stains of sauces and spilled drinks. Pizza. Taijun gestured to Koichi, who dropped the boxes down on the side. How long do you need? The trolls hearing the word pizza suddenly became very excited, and they stared at the crowd closer, their greasy hands reaching for the boxes when Magic Mike gave a growl, which the rest of the trolls quickly retrieved their hands back. Magic Mike sat up and plugged the data sticks quickly and glimpsed them through. One week. Three days, Taijun shook his head. You guys have no other projects now and it's all free so that you can watch porn. More pizza, if not one week. Magic Mike shook his pugy head slowly. Deal, I'll bring the rest of the pizza in three days' time. Taijun replied before he turned and walked off with Koichi in tow. I expect the debug to be done by then. As the door to the cave closed, Koichi let out a breath of relief. That place stinks. Yes, Taijun shook his head. Let's get out of here. Why do we need those trolls as debuggers? Koichi asked as they walked towards the elevator. For some reason, it seems that the trolls are natural in ones and zeros, Taijun explained. 
They can read code faster than what we all the computers can do. So they're geniuses, Koichi said as they entered the elevator. It's kind of like those people with autism, Chai Jun replied. I don't know how to explain it, but they have some kind of savant syndrome. They have significant mental disabilities, but can demonstrate certain abilities in far excess of average. The skills at which savants excel are generally related to memory. This may include rapid calculation, artistic abilities, map making, or musical ability. Usually, just one special skill is present, and the case for trolls, it appears to be programming. But don't think they are stupid and simple-minded, Taijun warned. They are pretty cunning. Anyway, we still need to do our part, Taijun sighed. We'll have to go double-check all their work and ensure that there are no backdoors installed. Also, the intranetwork they worked on, Taijun continued. We have to ensure that the whole intranet is safe to use for the masses. After seeing them watching porn, I don't think I feel safe letting them work on it. Uichi suddenly giggled. Well, they are intranet trolls. Orwell's point. The puttering engine roared out as Mills applied a throttle on the dirt bike, its wheels kicking and sprayed dirt and skidded across the terrain. Woo! Besides him, they followed the rest of the team, including Private Slow, riding on the modified ASAG. They had spent several days learning how to maintain, repair, and ride the dirt bikes. The elves slowly gained more confidence as they rode and familiarized themselves with more with the dirt bikes. As they were training themselves outfield, the UAV and dragons assigned to Orwell's Point flew reconnaissance over the area, heading from one suspected location of the Planeswalker clan to another. They returned to the city and no longer drew looks of fear and shock from the locals as they did the first time they rode their bikes out. Some of the local kids ran happily alongside the soldiers as they returned back to the stronghold. CEO wants to see you guys in command. A marine called out when the team parked their bikes inside the shed. It's urgent. Tyrion nodded and got the men to quickly stow away their gear before they trooped into command post. Good, you guys are back. Captain Joseph gestured them over to the map table. UAV has spotted what appears to be an orcish clan at one of the suspected locations. I want you to go in and check them out. Tyria and his men crowded over the table and took a look at the images taken by the UAV. Dozens and dozens of circular tents sat spread out around the waterhole in the plains while animals were corralled into makeshift fence nearby. This just came in an hour ago. Take your men out and gather intel. Joseph ordered, if evidence is found that they possess firearms, try to grab high-value target for interrogation. Clear? Tyria and the rest of the men nodded as they pondered over the UAV images. Private Slow and Sergeant Mills will be your liaison for this mission. All right, boys, Tyria said. Check your gear and service your bikes. We will move out in five hours when it's dark. With that, the men to the command post headed to prep the gear for the coming mission. The men packed weapons, ammunitions, rations, medical supplies, fuel for the bikes and loaded them onto the saddlebags on the bikes. When the skies turned dark, the team of eleven rode off from the side gates and guided by the UAV overhead, disappeared into the darkness. They rode in silence, their headlamps lighting up the terrain before them as they rode at a speed faster than a full gallop of a war dragon. It took them four hours of riding before they stopped and made camp, before continuing on in the morning. When morning came, a shadow in the sky slowly resolved into a dragon, and it beat its wings furiously as it landed on its hind legs next to the camp. Hot damn! Mills whistled as he looked admiringly at Blue Thunder. 
The men quickly unloaded the cargo of the dragon. Canisters of fuel were used to top up their bike tanks before the remainder was buried in the ground. Blue Thunder helped by digging a hole with his forearms. They left a beacon hiding the cash and rode off again, and the process of having the dragon to resupply and making cash repeated. By late evening, they finally arrived at their destination. They covered their bikes up with camo netting and hid before proceeding for over two kilometers on foot towards the orc camp. Drake grunted as he leopard crawled his way over the green sprouts in the plains and reached the top of a crest. He carefully peered out with his binos as Khan joined him and the orc camp jumped into his eyes. A simple wooden stake wall surrounded the camp, with dozens of guards walking the grounds. Torches lined the walls and outside a numerous circle tents inside the camp, while a large shadowy shape laid inside the pens, which they had identified earlier as wind walls and livestock kept by the orcs. Overwatch, imposition, Drake activated the throat mic and reported. Roger. Somewhere below, members of the 101st AGI were making their way stealthily towards the camp. The plan was to sneak in and do a quick search of the camp and see if they could find any clues of firearms. Drake kept his binos and snuggled the custom M1S against his shoulder as he looked over the guards as his powerful 12x scope. He laid a crosshair over the walking sentry and was about to move the scope to another when he jerked his scope back. Well, well, can't you see what that guard is wearing? Drake asked Kant next to him who had set up an observation binoculars on a tripod. Wait, oh, yeah, I see it, Kant replied excitedly. Overwatch to all, Drake quickly reported. Their guards are armed with firearms. End of chapter. Chapter 238 South Tyria slowly and patiently crawled his way forward and stopped just at the edge of the firelight of the torch burning next to the stake walls. He waited till a pair of yawning orc patrols walked off before he sprung up from his prone position and squeezed between the wooden stake wall. They quickly slipped next to the nearest tent and heard the monstrous snores of its occupant. He wiggled through the bottom of the leather flaps and turned his night vision in the darkness of the tent. Immediately his view turned green and he saw several sleeping shapes laying on piles of animal skins and fur. He ensured that they were all deep asleep before he went through the occupant's belongings. Other than the usual orcish trinkets and luggage, he found leather holsters with orc revolvers stored amongst the orc clusters of cold steel weapons. Tyria frowned and quickly retreated from the tent before repeating the whole process over again. After two hours, he slipped past the walls again and disappeared into the night. Making use of the glow of an infrabeam, he made his way to the rendezvous point where the rest of Claymore 1 were gathering after the initial infiltration of the Orc camp. They retreated some distance from the Orc camp before they settled down to compare notes. These Orchids are from the Stonepicker clan. They're not from the Planeswalker clan. Private Slow informed everyone. I see no banners, not Planeswalker clan, he repeated. Tyrion nodded. This is worse than we thought. It means that there isn't just one clan with firearms. The rest cursed as I heard the news. I found the forge, but they don't appear to be making weapons here, Altiad said as he took out some jerky from his pack to chew. Yeah, I found what appeared to be an armory of sorts, Loke said. They have only a few crates of ammunition inside. I think they are getting the stuff from somewhere else. Camp looks strange. Camp looks too small. Slow suddenly spoke up. I see no youngsters. 
Could they all be sleeping? Hitsu said. That's why you don't see them. No, no, the guards. Shlo explained. All old men, no young organs. Wait. Tyria frowned as he recalled the patrols that passed him by. You're right. Where are all the youngsters? Eight, but come too small, not giving Banner the place up. Slo frowned before he gave a shrug. Maybe they join another clan. Anyone seen the chief? Tyria asked. Me, but the tent is too guarded, so I can't get near his tent at all. Hitsu said. Why don't we just grab a couple of the guards and ask them? Mill suddenly asked from the side. Split them up and interrogate them on what they know about the guns. Well, we can do that, Tyria rubbed his chin in thought. And an hour later, Claymore 1 dragged two trussed-up orcs back to the hiding spot far away, not to be heard, and was separated to interrogate individually. As dawn breaks, Tyria rubbed his eyes and gratefully accepted the mug of hot tea from Mills. Are they talking? Well, not really, Tyria replied while sipping on the herbal tea, but Slow did manage to get something from them. We know their traders are sent to the trader city and gotten the weapons by trading their slaves and other goods. Tyria continued, most of the youngsters had left to join the city of all promises of riches and a good fight. As to the location, Tyria frowned, only the trade elders know, but it's somewhere south. Moles nodded, then south is where we go next. Far Harbor UNS Matador slowly entered Far Harbor port limits while a gaggle of strange escorts, the island whales happily kept pace with the tender of its sail towards the port. I feel like a mother duck bringing home ducklings, Paul joked as he peered at the island whales on the binos. Damn, things keep following us around like puppies. The UNS floating wreck took station on the starboard side of the matador and blew its foghorn as they sailed in and the island whales seemed to take this as a signal that they'd remain behind, baying playfully. Damn strange behavior, the XO of the matador said to Ford. I think they see us as a protector. Or a mother figure. Need to have a talk with a good doctor, Ford shook his head. I would have expected them to leave for other places by now. Never thought that they would stick around. The mining for the strange crystals can continue, but if they keep following us like this, it'll make it harder for the miners to work. Yes, sir, the XO nodded. Maybe we should mine them while the matador is docked. Ford sighed, thinking this world is getting more and more troublesome. Well, do what we need to do first. We worry about those turtles later. Great Ocean Plains The suppressed bark of the M2 ended a dozing orc sentry as he leaned against the rocky outcrop. His body went limp and collapsed when his shattered head spewed blood and brain matter. Huh? Another sleepy sentry turned his attention to the meaty flop of his companion, and before he could take a step, the side of his head exploded outwards with pieces of bite bone and fragments of brain matter. Go! Tyria hissed as he pushed himself up on one hand while the other held the M2 rifle snuggled against his shoulder with his hand on the trigger. The other members of Claymore 1 ghosted in towards the sleeping caravan. Firelight glittered off their bug-eyed goggles. Clear, right, Hitsu whispered as he shot the orca sleeping against the wagon and advanced the up with Loken support. Clear left, Altiod reported while he had a new guy wolf cleared the left of the caravans. Tyria entered the site with Mills and Slow in tow, all three with their weapons up and ready. All rovers and sentries down, Kant reported from the sniper perch 300 meters away as he and Drake provided overwatch. Tango still remaining inside the wagons. 
Tyrion signals Mills and Slow, pointing at one of the three covered wagons where the orc trader slept in. They ignored the other open top wagons and the slave cages as they headed to reach each wagon. Team 3 hold, keep your eyes out. Tyria commanded as the squad frequency. Team 2, form up in 1. Hitsu and Loke soon appeared from the other side of the wagons. Their goggles pushed up on their helmet mounts as the campfire was too bright to use the night vision goggles. Tyria looked at everyone who readied themselves at the rear and covered the wagons and spread his hands out, fingers closing one by one as he counted down for the men to take action. As his hand closed to a fist, he yelled, Go, go, go! The men each yanked the flaps of the wagon open while their partners provided cover, aiming their weapons at the interior. Merle's wagon was empty while Tyria's Team 1 and Team 2 had some orcs sleeping inside. The orcs were jolted awake with a sudden yell and were immediately dazed and disoriented, with a thousand lumens of tactical flashlights shining in their faces. They were dragged off the wagons and shoved to their knees. The orc traders struggled at first, till they felt the still warm barrels pushed against their heads. They recognized the weapons as boomsticks which they had purchased, and it was further confirmed that the sight returned and they saw the dead bodies of the guards being dragged together. The cage slaves and prisoners screamed and cried for help as they were rudely shocked awake by the yells of the soldiers and the orcs. Shut up! Altiad yelled and hammered on his rifle butt against the cage, forcing the locked people to shrink back from the scary painted face. Tyria ignored the slaves and he crouched down next to the three orc traders that had captured. He drew his service revolver with a gleam of the firelight and reflected the dark metal and the eyes of the orcs appeared to be mesmerized by the weapon. Now tell them this, Tyria said to Slow, who acted as a translator. I will let them leave if they tell me what I want to know. Slow dutifully repeated what Tyria said to the three kneeling orcs, only to receive scorn from them. They cursed and spat at Slow, who rose an eyebrow at the ranting. Which is the head? Tyria asked Slow, who pointed out the more lavishly and colorful dressed orc. And who are the rest? Most likely his sons or relatives. Slow shrugged. I would say relatives, as none of them look like him. Tyria nodded with a smooth movement. He fired his revolver point-blank at the nearest orc, which Slow identified as a relative. The 6.5mm 50-grain bullet left a 4.5-inch hole. Revolver barrel at 730 meters per second. The sudden roar of the revolver broke the silence of the night and the slaves cried out in fear. The eyeball popped as a 3.2-gram bullet drilled through the eye without resistance before ripping all the nerves and brain matter into the bloody mush. The bullet mushroomed as it hit the thick skull and fragmented into three pieces before breaking through, with one piece ricocheting within the brain case, further scrambling the brains like eggs. The remaining two fragments popped out of the lower back of the surprised orc's head with a spatter of brains and bloody tissue before he flopped forward before the campfire, kicking the embers from the fire. <coughs> the head orc screamed in anger as he tried to get the break free from his restraints. The cuffs tying his fingers together dug deep into his fleshy thumbs and blood flowed from the orc screamed in anger. I'll kill you! Itsu and Loke both used their full body weight to slam the orc trader down. The orc could only see the blood fluid slowly dripping from the dead nephew's ruined eye socket. I'll kill you! Now, if you don't want this fine specimen of an orc to die too, Terrier waved his gun in the direction of the other shocked orc, kneading to the other side. I suggest you start talking. You! You! 
The trader gritted his yellow teeth and suppressed his anger. I will kill you. Oh, is that so? Tyria thumbed cocking the hammer of his revolver back and took aim at the orc who looked suddenly unsure of himself. Say goodbye then. No, 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 wait, wait, I'm dark. The trader's beady eyes turned large in panic as he saw Tyria aiming at his other kin. I'm dark. Good. Tyria smiled. Now tell me what I want to know and we'll walk away happy. An hour later, Tyria reloaded his revolver, replacing three spent cartridges before reholstering the weapon. Turning to Mills, So, this city they're going to, it's called Sin City. Mills rubbed his face before he nodded. It actually sounds kind of familiar. Tyria took a seat. Never heard of this place before. In fact, this is the first time we have ever come to the plains. So what are you planning with the slaves? Mills gestured to the freed slaves clustered around the campfire for warmth, their threadbare clothing barely providing any insulation against the cold of night. Let them go, Terrier shrugged, but then again they might expose us. So you plan to finish them off too, Mills frowned, unarmed civilians too. Terrier sighed, no, don't kill civilians, I don't even need to lift a hand, most of them will die trying to find a way home. Mills shook his head sadly at Tyria's reply and walked away. Freaking hell. End of chapter. Chapter 239. Stories. Great Ocean Plains, Dead Frontier. Boss grunted with effort as he worked on one end of the two-man saw to see sawing blade cut the log down. After working the whole morning away, Boss was taking a break and having a simple midday meal when Taurus came up and joined him. We need seeds, Taurus said suddenly as they were eating halfway, and many other necessities. Boss nodded as he chewed on a coarse bread softened by some wild water in his hand. And some of the refugees that joined us over the past few weeks spoke of a trade city in the ocean plains, Taurus explained. I'm thinking of bringing a few wagons down with our stock of horns and hides that we got from the wild game to trade for some seeds. We plan to stay long term here. Taurus broke the bread into small crumbs and nibbled. We'll need seeds to grow crops and support everyone here. We only have a handful of seed grains and that will not be enough to feed everyone, especially with the influx of new refugees joining us every day. Boss looked over at the village and now looked more like a large town. There were dozens of half-completed wooden shacks still needing to be completed to a house these people. Ever since winter had ended, there were suddenly small groups of people fleeing the war from the kingdom of Forel and refugees who had villages pillaged by orc raiders and slavers. Get a list from the town hall on what is seriously lacking and take what you need to go trade for some seeds and food, Boss said. Gather two squads for escort and see if you can find someone who knows their way around here to lead you. Taurus grinned and stood up, dusting himself off before he went off to find another people that he needed to form a caravan. Soon, less than a day, Taurus managed to gather all the people that he needed and even list from the town hall the needs of everyone. He looked at the stack of horns and fur bundled on the back of the wagons and the chest filled with jewelry which the troops had secretly stashed on themselves and they were voluntarily gave up to Taurus to purchase the necessities that were needed. Taurus found a youngster who claimed to be on the trade city which he said was called Sin. He said it would take them roughly five day a week by mount to reach the city. Well, boss, wish me luck. 
Boss nodded and gave a wave to Taurus grinned and urged the mount forward while the rest of the convoy moved out of the repaired gates of the village. Take care, brother. Somewhere in the great ocean plains, Blue Thunder laid flat on the ground, gently snoring away with a bubble forming on his nostrils as men and aircrew unloaded crates of supplies on his harnesses. Other members of Claymore 1 worked on their bikes, ensuring that they were working order, while the rest buried the load of crates into the pit dug by Blue Thunder earlier. Air Force Sergeant Stamford spread out a map on the flank of Blue Thunder and pointed at the location. We are here, he said to Tyria and Mills. UAV has spotted a city which intel you gathered. Sin City, down here. He traced his finger down the map and stopped on the red dot. It's about half a day's ride or a semi-rough terrain. You guys should have enough fuel and supplies for a quick look-see, Stamford said, as Tyria and Mills pondered over the map, so we won't be resupplying you along the way. This will be a final resupply point. Field Command wants you guys to take a look, Stamford continued. See if you can find the source of the firearms and also if those treacherous bastards are there. Don't get detected, Stamford warned. It'll be a few hours for air support to get to you, so don't get into trouble. Both Tyria and Mills nodded grimly, knowing that if they got discovered, whoever is behind the firearms would be alerted and it would be harder to catch them the next time. Got it, Tyria replied as he rolled up the map. Once it's dark, we'll move out. The team normally travel at night despite the slower speed due to the terrain and high chance of encounter with monstrous beasts, to prevent being spotted by anyone. They would stop in the early morning and set up camp before moving off again at night. Just as the sun slowly set, Blue Thunder, having his belly filled and grilled meat of the mighty bison-like creature, took off into the skies, leaving the team behind. All right, police up the area. Tyria clapped his hands. I want no traces of us being here. Got it. The men spread out and carefully combed the area in the dimming light of the setting sun. By the time all traces of the presence were gone, they mounted up their bikes and one by one set off into the direction of Sin City. The small group of soldiers stopped as they spotted pinpricks of light in the distance. All of them dismounted and took their binos and saw a shadowy shape of the city with lights dotting here and there. Looks like we've found the city, Mill said. Find a place to set up again and observe the city. Tyria nodded in the dark. Yeah, let's do that. The men found a small rise on the rock outcrop that could serve as an impromptu shelter against the weather if needed. They settled down and had rotational guard to keep watch while the others slept. Mills grinned as he smelled the aroma of fried steak. Slow was humming to himself as he prepared the day's breakfast for everyone. The orc surprised everyone with his cooking skills and he became the team's designated chef. Slow dropped a few slivers of fat kept in the red rack they hunted yesterday into the cast iron pan. Once the fat bubbled and oil flowed out, he dropped slabs of choice cut and arc meat onto the pan and sprinkled it with finger of salt, pepper, and some bits of wild herbs he picked up along the way. He carefully packed away the remainder of the red meat into an icebox that had a magic rune carved into the inner side that lowers the temperature. If kept properly, the meat would last them for a few days before the magic in the rune depleted. The rest of the team came over and sat down around the campfire, watching Slow's cooking, and took the mess tins of steak before digging in. Mills licked his lips as he finished his portion and sat in the mess tin down. Damn, that was good. The rest grunted in agreement as they ate the food cooked by Slow. Damn it, Slow, you should be a chef. 
Slow looked down embarrassed as he packed away his cookery onto Asagi's storage bins. Cooking not warrior job, his female or slave's job. Bull crap, Mill shook his head. You can make it rich if you open up your own restaurant. Slow smiled at his thought of his own restaurant before he shook his head. No, Slow is warrior, Slow is marine. Ha, but you can't be a marine for life, Mull said as he leaned back against the rocks, looking up at the bright twinkling stars in the night skies. Someday you will retire from all the fighting, so what will you do? I'll be a farmer, Hitsu said. I'll buy my own plot of land and run my own farm. Farming, Loke laughed. What will you grow? Potatoes, Hitsu grinned. Those damn dragons love the stuff. I'll make lots of money. <laughs> Altiad laughed. I'm thinking of getting my own ship. I want to explore beyond these lands and maybe return to our ancestral lands. I want to get married and have kids with a nice three-room apartment down in District 2, Young said. Maybe get a job with the general hospital. Tyria and Mill smiled at the talk amongst the men. When Tabal asked, Say, Sarge, how about you? What do you plan to do when you retire? Tyria looked up at the skies and thought for a while before saying, I actually never really thought about it much. I always assumed that I would die in some unmarked grave in the battlefield. The rest, hearing Tyria's words, fell into silence. But if I really could live till I retired, well... I would like to run a farm like Hitsu, but not growing potatoes. The men laughed and Tyria smiled. How about you, Mills? What are you going to do if you retire? Me? Mills smiled in answer. Find myself a pretty wife, get a house near the sea, and enjoy life till I die of old age. <laughs> Tyria shook his head at Mills' answer. So simple. Yep, that's simple. Mills replied. I do want to return home, but... Uh, I don't think we'll be able to find our way home in the stars. Is it true you humans come from the stars? Slow suddenly asked. Mills looked at Drake who gave a shrug. Yeah, we came from the stars, from a planet far, far away. How far? Slow asked as he looked up at the stars in the sky. Mills grinned and replied, Slow, you can't walk there. Even if you can walk there, you would die of old age before you even reach fifth of the distance. Maybe even less. Hitsu whistled. Damn, how did you guys get here then? From our ship, Mills explained simply, our ship could travel anywhere in this whole world in minutes. We fought in an intergalactic war with an alien species which aimed to take all the biomatter to grow and propagate out in the whole universe, Mills said. The last time we fought, we kind of lost, and our ship landed here as we escaped. I see, Teria frowned. Even with your powerful technology, you lost. Think of them like dragons, but thousands and thousands of them, Mills gave an example. Half the time, your bullets can't penetrate the hide, and for every one you kill, two more step in. But the sooner or later we'll run out of troops, Loke asked, if you bombed them from as far. They outnumber us a thousand to one, even more, Mills sighed. I saw UAV footage of a swarm massing on a land that they covered the entire area. The bombs barely reduced their numbers as the ships and planes attacked them. Are they that dangerous, Kant asked. How did you all stop them? Yes, you can ask Drake. He fought them face to face before too, Mills replied. He managed to get out alive while others of his section didn't make it. The rest turned to look at the fire-lit face of Drake who nodded seriously. Those creatures are taller than even slow with jaws large enough to swallow you whole. They have four arms and two legs, with each arm ending in a bladed tip, sharp enough to rip steel through shreds. Some of them could spit acid saliva at you, while others have thorn barbs that is like the rifle, Drake said. 
I was lucky to get out alive. Just two of them things tore up my friends into pieces in just seconds. Well, the trick is either to use high-powered weaponry with armor-piercing ammunition, or shoot its weak points, which are opened mouth or its joints, Mills said. Pray that these creatures don't come to this planet. Mills' expression turned serious under the light of the fire as he looked at everyone gathered. For no one here has the strength or the firepower to resist them. End of chapter. Chapter 240. Serpent. Haven Research and Development Lab, Basement 3, The Cave. So, you're saying that there are duplicates to some command lines? Taijun asked as he checked the code on his laptop while standing on a relatively clean area in the troll's room turned cave. Yeah, yeah. Magic Mike muttered as he stuffed slice after slice of pizza in his mouth. Mmm. Because of these duplicate codes, it's causing the mech to go haywire as the pilot tried to execute a series of maneuvers. Tai Jun spoke to himself as he scanned the lines of code. Why didn't we spot this earlier? Too many redundancy. Magic Mike licked the greasy fingers and wiped his hand against himself. Too many subcommands and subcontrols and checks. Well, thanks. Tai Jun closed his laptop after he verified the coding. Enjoy your pizza. The trolls grunted as they continued to feast on pizzas delivered, ignoring Taijun as he left the room. Taijun left the basement and went up to his work lab and handed over his laptop to the IT department programmers. Triple check everything, make sure there is no viruses or backdoors in the code, and run the test diagnostics program on it once you check and compile the code. The programmer nodded and accepted the laptop plugging it directly into an isolated system before he and a few other programmers started to run checks on the code. A whooping roar shook his windows as Taijun looked out to see a skeletal frame of a prototype helicopter passing by next to the lab and headed towards the testing grounds. He smiled and rubbed his hands together and sneered. Psst, just a hello. Wait, my team's mechs will overshadow the aviation team's achievements. Outskirts of Sin City Kant scribbled down some notes on his notepad while laying on his side on the prickly grass before leaning back on his tripod-mounted high-powered binoculars. Hmm. Hmm, what? Jurek asked as he scanned the city mud walls with a sniper scope. Seen anything interesting? Well, I observed at least 17 wagons being delivered into the city side gates over the past two hours, Kant replied. If I'm not wrong, they should all be transporting limestone. So? Jake asked. The city seems to be full of state of construction or expansion. Yes, but limestone. Kant frowned. I see the walls are all clay. So, maybe they use the limestone to make other stuff. Drake moved his scope to look at the side gates where the line of carts and wagons were waiting to enter the city. But isn't limestone the main ingredients to use to make concrete? Kant replied. I learned that during one of my night classes. Hmm... Drake paused and considered Kant's words. Kant, you see a group of laborers working on the wall, roughly a hundred meters left of the main gates. Kant aimed his binoculars towards the location indicated by Drake and what Drake was saying. Yeah, I see a large party working on the wall. Think you can see what they're using? Drake asked as he tried to spot the laborers were using. Wait, Kant said as he observed the workers. Oh, they're pouring some grain mixture into barrels onto the wall. Crap. Is that concrete? Drake could see the figures pouring into molds that set against the wall, but wasn't sure what they were until Con spoke of limestone. Damn, if they're using concrete, I think we might have found our deserters. Sin City, Palace of the Cabal. 
Raman, dressed in a pair of flowing robes, stood on a balcony of his suite and watched the glowing firelights of the city in the night while sipping on some local wine. A hissing rasp jolted Raman out of his thoughts and he spun around, dropping his wine goblet while pulling a revolver out and pointing at his bedchamber. He saw a large black serpent, easily as long as five meters, coiling itself over the soft furs of his bed. The snake appeared to enjoy the feel of the furs against the black, hoidy scales as it slithered in a circular motion while giving the hisses and bliss. You! Raman was dumbstruck, his hands holding his gun shaking as he stared wide-eyed at the snake. What are you doing here? Raman whispered. How did you get in? The serpent stopped its rubbing against the furs and coiled up. Its flat triangular head straightened up, its pitch-black flint-like eyes glinted in the light of the fireplace of his bedchambers. Ish, I'm always here. The serpent rasped, Ish can go where Ish want, I no mortal can stop me. Have you found what Ish need? The serpent slithered off the bed and coiled its way over to Raman. Haves you? No, I need more time. Raman stood glued to the floor, shaking in fear as the serpent coiled around his body. He felt the snake's body slowly constricting him, but he could only stare in terror at the pitch-black eyes of the snake. I sense its power, the serpent hissed at Raman in his ear. I need its power. Raman nodded his head rapidly in agreement. I... I promise you, I'll find it for you, but the world is so big, where are we to find it for you? The serpent looked towards the direction where it sensed the power of its arch-enemy. There's... Raman nodded hurriedly. Okay, I'll send people to find it. Ah, your soul smells so good. Raman felt the serpent lick the sweat that was coming out of his paws in fear. Hmm, yeah, so delicious. Find me what is once vast is hungry. The serpent gave a warning squeeze on Raman's body before it released its hold on him and slithered to the dark corner before seemingly into the shadows. Fails me not, mortal. Ish hunt for souls now. Hungry. Raman suddenly felt the strength disappearing from his body and he slumped down on the spot, shaking uncontrollably. He flung the gun away from the side and rubbed the sweat off his face and cursed. Damn, this freaking world. Outskirts of Sin City, hidden camp. So you suspected they are making and using concrete to build the city? Tyria frowned as he heard the report from Drake and Kant while everyone else was gathered around the campfire for dinner. If that is true, and those frickers are here, Moles growled, we need to call this in. Tyria nodded. Inform command about this. I want to send a new UAV to scout more. So what's next? Moles asked. We infiltrate the city. No, I don't think we can get in so easily. Tyria frowned. We need more intel first. Mills nodded. Well, we waited for more than half a year to find these bastards. I'm sure letting them live for a few more days won't make much a difference. All right, remember our main objective, Tyria reminded everyone. A. We need to find out where they're making the weapons. B. Where they are making the ammunitions. C. Where the weapons are stored. D. The plans for the weapons, if any. Next, E, identify and locate all eight of the deserters. F, locate the missing fabricator and WTS generator. Tyria listed out the mission objectives. Once we have all this intel, we move to the next part of the mission. Tyria looked at each member in the eye. We destroy 
everything. Are we to kill those eight off too? Itsu asked. If possible, capture alive. If not, Terrier made a gesture across his throat. Dead or alive, they're coming back with us. The men nodded. Good. Now get some rest. We'll take turns to keep the city under tabs while we wait for further instructions from high command. The men dispersed, leaving Terrier and Mills behind. So what do you think our chances of capturing all eight? Terrier asked. Depends on what intel we can gather first, Mills replied. Issue is how are we going to get into the city? Tyria rubbed his chin. Well, we can pose as merchants, but we'll need some props for that. Mills grinned. So, when are we going to rob more orcs? Sin City, Palace of the Cabal. It was late morning when Raman entered the Great Hall. His eyes had dark eye bags and he couldn't fall asleep till the sun came up. He looked at the strange tents, the looks that the orcs and his men were giving everyone. Even the slaves appeared to be skittish today. What's the problem? he asked as he sat down for his breakfast, looking at the only one lounging around the table. And you heard, Kumar said a sip of local tea. There were a few unexplained deaths in the palace and the city. Unexplained deaths? Raman rubbed his tired eyes and took a cup of tea for himself. How? unexplained. Well, some of the maids found three of their own dead in their beds this morning, Kumar explained, and the guards reported that there was another five more similar cases in the city. Two slaves, two orc guards, and one merchant found dead in the same way. All had expressions of fear on their faces, but no visible wounds anywhere. Kumar shrugged. Seemed like they died of fear, so the whole city is kinder on their toes because of those deaths. There are rumors of some death guard in the city, Kumar continued, but it should all be nonsense. Hey, are you okay? You look kind of pale. Are you dealing with some illness? Want me to call a healer over? N no, Raman quickly waved away the concern. I'm okay, just not enough sleep. <laughs> you should pace yourself, man, Kumar grinned and winked. Don't do it too much. Raman nodded tiredly, ignoring Kumar's jab. Call everyone for a meeting later today. I have something important to say to everyone. Got it, boss Sultan. Kumar grinned as he left the table, leaving Raman alone with the maids. The private conference room soon filled up with eight of the humans, and they all looked like Raman curiously. Is this meeting because of the unexplained deaths happening last night? In a way, yes, Raman said. I believe you all remembered the oath we made in the forest before we came here. The men all paused and looked at each other uneasily. Yes. Well, the oath giver came to me last night. Raman said with the room went quiet so that you could hear a pin drop. Yes, it came and those unexplained deaths are most likely its handiwork. Bliat! Ivan slammed his fist on the table. What does that thing want from us? It wants what we promised it, Raman yelled, and we need to find it for it or we'll be dead next. We shouldn't have agreed to its terms that time, Aaron said. It wasn't worth the trouble. And then what? Rumu Garcia asked while making a sign of the cross. Let it take our souls. Enough! Raman banged on the table to stop the arguments. We promised it, and it took its power. Now it is here, and it wants payment. Raman could feel the fear in the room, and he sighed. We spread the word that we are looking for the merchants here, and put up offers of rewards for any information, or best if they have what we want. Get your sales guys to ask around too once most of the time that they are on the ground, running from one village or town to another, Raman ordered. See if we can get any clues that we want. Leong nodded while Raman continued. It said it sensed its power in somewhere towards the direction where we came from. The Singapore. End of chapter.
And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.